Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, September the 7th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Congratulations to our Atlanta Braves. This, this abbreviated sports section uh, is, you know, we gave Bert far more than he deserves yesterday, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, we gave he, each he and a, every of one of the, I mean, Yeah, I mean, we had a chance to name each and every one of the thousand gods, uh, multiple thousands of gods, Um but we're going to condense that today. It will not be about Gamecock Tiger football. It won't be about racing. But it will be about uh, our Atlanta Braves. Right, Rev? Our Atlanta our, Braves. Oh, our Braves. Free hole, you listening? Free hole, you listening? Our Atlanta Braves, who are 62 and 24 since June the 1st, they were down 10 and a half games. I went back and looked last night. They were down 10 and a half games um, on June the 1st. They played, what, 720 baseball since then? 62 and 24. And we are, here we go with a country phrase. You ready? We're in a flat-footed tie <laughs> with the New York Mets yeah. right now. I mean, we are in a flat-footed tie. Now, now the, the Braves could win today and still be relegated to second place because the Mets are playing a doubleheader, rain, uh, rain out on Monday that they're making up today. Um, DeGrom, if I'm not mistaken, is pitching game one of the day-night doubleheader. Here we go with the unions. The unions won't let them play back-to-back doubleheaders anymore. Players got to take a nap. Oh. You know, they got to have a couple of hours between games. So I think the Mets have a 12-30-ish start. And again, at about 7 or so, 6-30 or 7, uh, they're playing the hapless Pittsburgh Pirates. But the Braves are playing the hapless Oakland Athletics. Um, both of those teams kind of bargain shop. They don't spend a lot of money. I don't know if you saw this. Dennis Eckersley was calling the game. Uh, he's a, I think, Boston play-by-play announcer. Uh, might have been Boston. Who was Eck for? Might, might, Eck may be with the Cardinals. Anyway, he's mm-hmm. a, he's he's in the broadcast booth. He's a color commentator for one of the Major League Baseball teams. Um, Dennis Eckersley, one of the great, great closers in all of Major League Baseball history, but probably known more for the Kirk Gibson home run, you know, giving up the home run. I mean, Eck was probably the best closer in the game at that time and uh, hadn't given up but like three home runs all year. Um there's kind of an inside baseball story there. But anyway, Eckersley's a, uh, a color commentator for one of the teams, and he called um, he called the Pirates a hodgepodge of nothingness. <laughs> he nice. said, hey, man, we were in Kansas City a couple of weeks ago, but they're playing some prospects. You know what I mean? They're a low-budget team. Kansas City is a small-market MLB uh, franchise. He said, but at least they're developing players. I mean, you know, when you come to Pittsburgh and you, and you see this team, it's a hodgepodge of nothingness. Um, which was an insult, but it kind of calls it like like he sees it. So the Braves are playing the Oakland Athletics, who have not made uh, really wise and frugal investments (laughs) in their baseball franchise. There was nobody there. There's nobody ever there. I mean, it's one of the, uh, in in all honesty, when you were a big Red Machine fan, and I was a big Red Machine fan, one of their rivals was the Oakland Athletics. I mean, Raleigh Fingers and Catfish Hunter and uh, Reggie Jackson was on the um, Oakland Athletics. But this was a... Uh, you know, a, a pretty storied franchise, and they've just let it go to nothing. I don't understand uh, the ownership, what their motivations are or is. Um, but you've got three low-budget teams that I think about. The Kansas City Royals have never had the ability to compete with big budgets. And in other words, if the Royals wanted a player and the Dodgers wanted a player, the Dodgers and Yankees get who they want. Uh, the Mets would be similar to that. But the, the, the Kansas City Royals have done a good job of maintaining a certain status. They won a world championship several years ago as a low-budget team. But the A's and Pirates, a little bit ironic here that the Braves are playing the A's, the Mets are playing the Pirates, 
And I mean, both teams are much better than their respective foes, but the Pirates got them yesterday. And the A's gave the Braves a fit. They did. I mean, the Braves had seventeen game winner, um, a seventeen game winner on the bound, and um, had a six one lead. And you know, the, the give the A's credit; they fought and dug and scratched and clawed in front of three hundred forty seven people. Um, there were less people at the game than Burt believes in gods. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's how it was. But uh, but anyway, congratulations to the Braves first time uh, since opening day that they're tied for first place. We shall see where this goes. So do we want to talk about the hypothetical or the reality? I mean, I've got several hypotheticals here we can discuss, or I've got some realities. Here's a hypothetical okay, for you. I want to hear some I'll throw this out to begin with. Something's happening at CNN. Okay. Brian Stetler got fired. Right. Or didn't renew his contract. John Harwood was removed as their chief, uh, excuse me, uh, Great Television's senior national editor, Wiles correspondent John Decker joins us every Thursday morning. So Harwood be, would be the equivalent of John Decker. He would be CNN's senior like national, national editor, White House gotcha. correspondent. He was removed from his job. Uh, a blistering tweet. Wanted to know what's going on. How dare you? You know, I mean, I went to Brown. Did you not know I went to Brown? People from Brown don't get fired mm-hmm. by anybody. Um, but CNN has hired a new CEO. And the CEO has seen the hemorrhaging of viewers and they're not making a lot of money. I mean, when I say CNN is not making a lot of money, their profit was about, it was less than a billion dollars for the first time since 1986 or, or 87. Uh, they've not seen any market growth. So CNN has a lot of issues on their hand. They became the anti-Trump network. I mean, they, they catered to those who despise Donald Trump and, um, you know, wanted to kind of spoon fed that every single night. Stetler, the cute little fat boy, um, Cabbage Patch Kid, was kind of the um, the poster child of becoming somewhat relevant. I mean, Stetler never been a voice of, of, of any influence or, or meaning, meaningfulness. I mean, he had, he was the kind of the, he was again, the Cabbage Patch boy over there in the corner. Um, but he became one of the epicenters for We Hate Trump. You know, and, uh, and and Fox News. I mean, he kind of followed up. When Trump left, it was Fox News. In other words, he doesn't have a shtick unless there's kind of a boogeyman. Trump was the boogeyman, and then Fox News became the boogeyman. And I guess it didn't sell. I mean, it sold when Trump was the boogeyman because Trump can be a boogeyman. I mean, we all admit that. So what if CNN, here's the hypothetical. What if CNN is seriously trying to uh, address its eels to become a worthy media outlet cnn has the capacity i mean they're a little bit like yeah, the new york I don't times see in anyway just as a viewer who who used to respect cnn and sure. go go there whenever there was news you wanted to see something breaking in the country or the world you went to cnn but i don't think they could ever earn that trust from me again okay and that's interesting um but they're i think they're going to give it a whirl okay i think they're going Good to try and redeem themselves i mean once again now you would be you're a trumpster i'm a trumpster so we would be the radical case for reform, right? I mean, if you could convince us, but a lot of people weren't as sympathetic to the America First movement as you and I were. So, I mean, yeah, I think some people could drift back over there. Um, from what I'm gathering, Don Lemon and Jake Tapper are next. From what I'm gathering, like I've got sources inside CNN. <laughs> oh. Let me stop with that. Uh, from what I read, I'm not gathering a damn thing. From what I read um, in some of these media accounts, it seems that... CNN has its sight set on Tapper and Don Lemon uh, once again because they've tainted themselves. I mean, the Rev says, I mean, I get what you're saying. There's no way I'd ever trust Jake Tapper. There's no way I'd ever trust Don Lemon. But if Lemon's not there, 
if Tapper's not there, if Stetler's not there, if Harwood's not there, and they're replaced by, let's say, someone like Tim Russert. I don't know who that is, mm. but let's say someone like Tim Russert. I think over time, you would pivot, not fully and not without hesitation, but I think at some point in time, you'd say, okay, I mean, you know, they admit they got it wrong. I don't know that they got it wrong. I mean, they were in the, they're, they're in the business. They're not in the business of, of being the, um, the moral compass of American journalism. They're in the business of making profit. Mm-hmm. And they saw an opportunity via Donald Trump to make a profit. Um, MSNBC was the, what shall I say, the intellectual liberalism in America. And CNN wanted to dumb it down a little bit. In other words, most folks don't want to go that highfalutin John Meacham, you know, morning jump. Most, most most politicos, and I'm talking about, you know, the, the average guy that turns the television on in the morning, uh, watching whomever it is he chooses or she chooses to watch. Um, MSNBC try to be a little more intellectual about their concern of Trump, their resistance to Trump. CNN just said that the guy sucks. Somebody's a brute. He's an authoritarian. Uh, totalitarianism. I mean, all those th- words were thrown around in the most provocative way imaginable. But here's the point: you, you, I mean, before Trump got there, we, I mean, I mean, you and I know that the the media is liberal. I mean, there, there's always been a wink and a nod. The media is liberal, and we accept that. We understand that. We discount some of that. Now, now a certain percent of Americans don't buy that well, because they probably have liberal proclivities. But, but, but I think CNN could earn a certain percentage of my trust back. I don't know that they'd ever earn it all back. But there was a day when Bernard Shaw and some of the others I'm thinking about, I mean, the names escaped me, but I remember turning on CNN when a major news event happened. I mean, I didn't go to Fox or anybody else. I didn't go to MSNBC. That's right. Uh, I went to CNN, and I felt they gave me the most accurate account. Now, once again, I always felt it was a little bit biased to the left, but journalism is by its nature. But I think CNN... Um, hypothetically, what if CNN redeems itself? What if CNN has Hillary Clinton? I mean, Hillary was on the Nora O'Donnell, what, Today Show with Nora O'Donnell, CBS Evening News CBS. with, with Nora O'Donnell. She didn't ask her about the Russia collusion. I mean, she let Hillary just go on and on and on and on and on about the difference in why I said I thought the election was, the election was invalid and why, you know, Joe Biden, you know, it's obvious it's different with Trump. Well, of course it and is she in your eyes. Why she wears pantsuits. Well, I mean, but, but she never like asked us, hey, what about you paying, you know, for the Russian dossier? I mean, how about the DNC and you coordinating and purchasing and, and paying off someone to go dig up dirt on Trump and then to just basically make up dirt on Trump? Um, what if CNN had Hillary on? And she expected a Nora O'Donnell sort of interview uh, where you're talking about pantsuits and children. And I mean, the kid's ugly as mama. Uh, but, but, but what if what, what if that was what CNN um, came to? I mean, what, what if it really and truly? I know that was secular. It's early. I mean, it's early. <laughs> G- give me a chance to get my, my legs under me. Like, is someone on the phone? Okay, let's go there. Uh, Breeze. Hey, Breeze, you're on the air. That, that would be a game changer if uh, the media quit all uh, being on another arm of the fascist, godless Democrats. And if it gives Bert a headache, tell him to take a damn aspirin. But, you know, um, I'll tell you another thing, too. Um, I would say, what is racism, Ken? Is it, I mean, can racism be done against white people? Because if it can't, we got a problem. Because there's a lot of white people that are being severely victimized by racism. I'll just leave that there. Another question I have, I wonder how many of the elite, godless, fascist Democrats in California 
on heeding the governor's. Like, in other words, I wonder if Barbara Streisand or Whoopi Goldberg or those people, are they turning their air conditioners to 78 or 80? Are they turning off all their major appliances? Or do they have some sort of, uh, since they're all gazillionaires, as Forrest Gump says, I guess they all have generators. So, again, who's suffering in California with the lack of power? Or is it the people worth $100 million? I doubt it, seriously. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, there, so there again, you know, you have, uh, I mean, uh, and then let's go back to your football thing. You know, like I told you yesterday, I said, I don't for the life of me can understand that. I'm going to ask Bill Barnhill when he comes in at 8.15. He played ball there, in the, like I said, in the 80s. And he was on that 84 team. How in the hell can an offensive line that going to block good enough? And basically they were a young offensive line two years ago. And they going to have a running back lead the SEC in rushing. And I'm not talking about he didn't lead that going to Southern Conference. He led the Southeastern Conference. And rushing. So you got to think that those guys, how in the hell do you not get better from a sophomore to a senior? I mean, or, or to get a coach screw up an offensive lineman that bad in two years? The hell, I, I, that don't make no sense to me. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. But the point, I'll go back to this real quick. This um, this abbreviated sports section brought to you by Bird of a Thousand Gods. Um you know, I don't. I'm not in the tra- in the meeting rooms when the game calls get together. I mean, I'm not. I'm not there where they break it down into you know the offensive line goes this way, defensive line goes that way, defensive backs, linebackers. I mean, that's what you do. I mean, w- when you get to that level of football, everybody has a specialty, and the linebacker coach doesn't work much with the offensive line. the The offensive line coach doesn't work with the wide receivers. Uh, to some degree, wide receiver blocking technique falls under the purview of an offensive line coach. But um, Kevin Harris led the Southeastern Conference in rushing when Will Muschamp was at South Carolina. Um, I mean, it's in the same group of linemen, but but some of those freshmen are now upperclassmen. Um, I just think, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, without being in the room, it seems to me it's a very complicated blocking scheme. you got gap blocking and zone blocking and man blocking, and it, it looked to me like Saturday night. As I mean, Rev Rev says I watch football in the weeds, and I guess to some degree, having played a good bit and watched a lot of it, I do watch it in the weeds a bit. And it looked to me like that the offensive line was not certain of what its responsibilities were. I don't believe it's talent. I mean, they're not Nebraska of the '80s. You know, they're not Michigan of the '90s. They're not you know Florida of the 2000s. They're not Alabama or Georgia today. But the offensive linemen at South Carolina are talented enough to be more effective than they were, uh, what, 671 yards rushing against a, a Sunbelt team. Uh, once again, to Breeze's point, three years ago, you lead the SEC in rushing or had the SEC's leading rusher, uh, and you rush against a Sunbelt team, what, 31 carries, 71 or two or three yards, less than three yards a carry. Um, something doesn't add up there. Something doesn't make any sense there. I don't think it's a lack of talent. Once again, I don't believe this offensive line is as talented as Alabama. Who is? I don't think it's as talented as Georgia. Who is? Um, Clemson's got some issues on the offensive line. I have no idea. Don't pay close enough attention to Clemson. Have they missed some recruits? Uh, Are they not developing players? Or is it some sort of scheme or schematic disadvantage that they have? And it looked to me, and I'll give you an illustration real quick. Um, Watching the game Saturday night, there would be an ineffective run play, and two offensive linemen would look at one another. 
And then one would look over the bench, you know, the coaching staff. And that just suggests to me there's some sort of confusion about what my responsibilities are. Once again, guys, offensive linemen are the hardest position to recruit. I mean, it really is. You find a big guy, 6'5", 300 pounds. Can he play at that level or not? Got to get him in the weight room. Got to get him fit. Got to get him stronger. Got to get him a lot of different sort of footwork, technique, all these other sorts of things. Um, the I would argue, Rev, the hit rate on offensive linemen is probably less than any other position on the field. The kid in high school that, that's a great running back, normally some of those skills translate to being a good college player. Wide receiver, some of the same things. The offensive line's different. I mean, it's a unit. It has to be cohesive. You've got to know what I'm doing. i got to know what you're doing. When the center walks up to the line and points out, I mean, he's not saying, hey, where are you going for lunch tomorrow? You know, hey, don't, don't I know your sister-in-law? I mean, he's pointing it to, to assign responsibilities. And it looks to me like, it looked like this all last year, that the Gamecock offensive line had very little understanding of what their responsibilities are and schematically what their priorities needed to be. That's from someone who has played the game a good bit and watched more than I care to even remember. So, you know, to Breeze's point, how can they be an offensive line that led the country in rushing a couple of three years ago and struggle like they did last year and the first game this year? I don't know why, but my estimations or guesstimation is there, there's something schematic they're doing that when the kids are out on that field in, in, in real time under the gun, they're struggling with. Um, Marcus Satterfield is the offensive coordinator. It comes to the NFL, and the NFL is a different animal. I mean, you get the best of the best. When a guy walks into the Carolina Panthers training room as an offensive lineman, he's been thoroughly vetted. I mean, he's a grown man. He's not an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old kid. I mean, he's a grown man who gets paid to stop people from the other color jersey tackling his quarterback or wide receiver or running back. And, um, and that's just, I mean, you can expect a different degree of complication when you get to that level. Um, but, but once again, that is simply a, a guesstimate. I don't have any, I don't have any privileged information about what kind of techniques they run, but, but it looks to me like, especially when I get the wheezier bit, when they bring an edge rusher and, and you kind of see like, oh, okay, is that my guy? Do I loop here? Do I stun him? You know, uh, uh, what, what spot do I have? I, I watched Saturday night, an edge rusher, um, and, and the guard stands there, and you would expect the guard to step back, pick up, or slide down one, and the guard just sits there, and nobody's in front of him. <laughs> so, so, so a 300-pound man for an entire play does nothing. Just stands there looking like, okay, nobody came my way. You, you see where I'm headed? I mean, it just, you and I watch football well, so I mean, differently. Well, you worried about these lights going around the stadium. <laughs> well, and, I did enjoy the lights, but, but I also am like, hey, throw it. Well, hey, catch it. I can tell you this. I like those lights a lot better when I'm winning. Sure. And and, and if we don't straighten that offensive line out, uh, it ain't going to be a lot of winning. I'll assure you. Well, I'm wondering when we may have that. another night game. I mean, we've got some, I guess, our next uh, schedule home games, a noon game, darn it. Yeah, a noon game against who? Georgia. The lights don't matter. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Eight four three six six. I wish the lights were oh, on no, so it yeah. distract yeah. us maybe them, a little bit. Them dog I grew up, them dogs were good. <laughs> them dogs is real good this year. We're yeah. real good last year. Um anyway, so is life as a gamecock. Take a break. Back in just a bit. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Got a lot of uh, okay, we've played the hypothetical out. What if CNN were to get real? What if CNN had Brett Bear? I mean, what, what if Brett Bear's contract came up at Fox News, CNN, they're not going to hire Brian Kilmeade of Tucker Carlson, right? I mean, th those Probably guys are, not. I mean, I don't want to call them political hacks, but they're, they're partisan. I mean, they're, they're partisans, no question about it. Uh, they have an agenda. Bear 
less likely to be that way. I but, mean, Breyer, hypothetically, if CNN is trying to get news credibility back and they hired somebody like Brett Baer, I mean, that would mean something to me. Well, it means something to him. you, but the other half of the country, would they, they yeah. just they, they flipped. I mean, they went from one extreme to the other. Uh, what would you say for y'all? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Who would you consider uh, the best or like somebody that has been around the last 10 years? Uh, nonpartisan political journalist. Oh, that's an interesting question. Maybe Bayer, maybe Brett Bayer. Um, now, once again, I don't watch CBS Evening News. I don't have any idea what Lester Holt does on NBC or any of the others. I mean, they read a teleprompter. They do what they're told to do. Um, to I've always felt Bayer was <sighs> fair-minded because some days I'd kind of be on his team and other days I'd be mad with him. And I'm right of center. I mean, no question about it. I'm a conservative voter. I'm an America first voter. Um, he would frustrate me as much as I felt like he was. I just think he did an honest job. Is I mean, there I, anybody not on Fox that would fit that bill? I don't know because I just don't watch a lot of yeah, news. Me neither. My, my world is more about the writers. I mean, who are the writers? Rod Rear is a writer. I mean, there are a couple of writers that, believe it or not, there's a writer at The Atlantic that I think makes an attempt to get it right. I mean, I can't think of his name, but if I read some of his articles, I probably read a hundred of his articles over the last 10 years. And I mean, he's in a liberal publication. He's probably at heart a liberal. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, I bet there's not a day goes by that he didn't have a cinnamon dolce latte in his hand. Um, but but I think he's fair-minded. If, if The job of a journalist is to be able to take those personal dispositions they have, check them at the door, and just tell the truth. Here's what the story is. Nora O'Donnell, if Nora O'Donnell at CBS News were a serious journalist and, and not a pundit, not a talking head, not, not a pretty lady who reads a teleprompter, I mean, if she were a serious journalist, there's no way Clinton gets out of that, um, you know, meeting or studio or wherever they have the interview, uh, not answer the question about paying for the Russian dossier. It might have been a diner. Well, which, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, Hillary that's, goes that's, to where, that's where the Clintons the hang out. I mean, yeah, they hang, all hang the time. out. I was thinking about this uh, this morning because um, I was. I went back and watched some of the uh, archived interview of Nora O'Donnell and Hillary Clinton, and you're right. I mean, it was more about, you know, the empowerment of women and, uh, you know, the, the place, your place in history and all these other sorts of, uh, of symbolic symbolism, uh, symbolic things and symbolism in general. Um, but, but I was thinking about, you know, politics has always had a sleaze factor. The Clinch just took it to another level. I mean, I was born in 1963, became politically active in 2004, so for 40 years of my life, I could have cared less, you know, what was happening in Washington or Columbia or at county council or city council or the mayor's chamber. But but once I became somewhat of a political student, I, I began to retroactively review things that I, you know, I mean, I remember the Reagan revolution. I'm not a moron. I mean, I remember being young and this guy inspiring a nation. My father was a self-made business guy. So my father was very enthusiastic about uh, about. Uh, Ronald Reagan. My dad would have been real enthusiastic about Donald Trump. I mean, I've often thought of that in my private moments. What would my dad have done? Because dad was not a politico by any stretch, but he was a self-made business guy that lived in that very real world. My dad would have been the most unbelievable Trump supporter you could ever imagine. The political incorrectness, the bluntness, the, the matter of factness, the take no prisoners, hold no punches. Uh, yeah, that, that would have been, he'd said, hey, he's Reagan on steroids. <laughs> Um, but, but, but once again, to, to the point of the Clintons, politics has always had this sleaze factor. The Clintons just allowed it to be normalized and accepted a little bit celebrated in a way. Ah, oh, you know, Bill Clinton, he is I mean, a young intern and I mean, you know, old man, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, kind of sleazy, but uh, we, we just normalized a lot of things that historically we have frowned upon. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. 
Hey, as always, uh, you got the truth by the by the tail there. Um, but you're absolutely right about it. Uh, I, I want to go back. You got me going on the football a little bit. But I don't know why in the world these high-paid coaches can't figure out if they don't have an offensive line and give that quarterback three seconds every once in a while, uh, you're not going to make any serious yardage, not in the SEC or the ACC. And uh, that's just all there is to it. You've got to have that offensive line. I, I don't care what kind of running back or quarterback you got because he's got to have a few seconds to get rid of that ball. And uh, to continue the football uh, analogy, a little well, it wasn't an analogy there, but uh, it seems like the Republicans. Uh, this is just my comment I wanted to make yesterday: is every time they get the ball, they just want to lateral it back and forth behind the line of scrimmage until they uh, lose possession of the ball again. Uh, they don't want to make any serious yardage. And I think that's what we loved about uh, Trump is uh, he's going to make some serious yardage if at all possible. And that, that's something we hadn't seen yet. But Nora O'Donnell, I will call her a political hack because she is a political hack. I don't uh, – I, I, I wouldn't be so kind to her as just say she was a pundit. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Talking about move the ball down the field. Let's go into realities here. And I, I just can't let this be. I mean, there, there are a few things that get in my head, and I just want to see my political party, the Republicans, address it in a meaningful fashion. There, there are times I see a layup. I mean, I'm a former you know candidate for office, a former office holder, and and, and you got to be able to recognize the layup. Now, you got to be understand when it's a contested three-pointer and you don't take it. Talking about basketball analogies now. I mean, there are times... That, that you, you know, in your mind, you've got this idea, this notion, this belief, but you accept that, hey, man, this is a contested three-pointer. I mean, let me wait on this. Let me find a better um, avenue to get this shot off. But there are some times out there, Rev, that it's a layup. And the student debt issue in America to me is a political layup for the Republican Party. 95% of Americans, do on this for a second, guys, 95% of Americans didn't know that the government guarantees 90% of the student debt. I mean, you looked at me yesterday like, that can't be true. And then you kind of pondered for a second, because I watched you process it, and you go like, well, I mean, I, yeah, and I, I would get that. Who would know? I mean, nobody sent me a letter in the mail saying, hey, as fellow taxpayer, you're now on the hook, you know, the Obamacare legislation. Now, this happened prior to that, but, but the Obamacare legislation, some of the caveats of the Obamacare legislation, put it on steroids. 2010 is when it really became exacerbated, and we became basically the bank. I mean, the federal government became the bank of, of you know, how we're going to secure and guarantee some of this student debt. So when, when, when 95% of people don't know they're on the hook for a certain liability, uh, and, and the way I'd say it, I mean, you know how I'd say it. I'd say, look, man, you didn't receive the service. You didn't borrow the money but you're on the hook for the repayment. I mean, what's fair about that? In the, in the name of fairness, let, let's stop arguing conservative and liberal. Let's be fair for a second. What's fair about that? Nothing. There is no fairness there. I mean, I get the convoluted government. I get the complications of government. Larry and I talked a little bit about some of the nuances of this. Um, Larry and I texted a little bit yesterday. Um, I think we're in agreement of abolishing the student student loan program or the federal guarantee of the student loan program. But what do we do with the $1.7 trillion in debt? I mean, that's the quandary right now. You got 1.7 increasing every moment of every day. Somebody will borrow money tomorrow to go to college. Someone will 
uh, refused to pay back some of the money they borrowed to go to college. Um, so what do we do about the $1.7 trillion in student debt? Here's my frustration. No Republican office holder, the only people that have been quieter than higher education. I mean, I, you know, I, I keep waiting for a college president or, or an administrator, high-ranking administrator from UCAL Berkeley or, or Stanford. But you can kind of understand why they're, they're keeping their head well, down They're, a they're hunkering bit right now. down. They're, yeah. they're trying to weather the storm. They're trying to wait this out. I mean, you can rest assured there have been inter- internal conversations between college presidents and administrators about, hey, lay low. I mean, this thing could really cause us big problems because here's the deal. Let's say there's 20 million kids every year going to college. I mean, the University of South Carolina had 7,000 new freshmen. What would that model look like if next year it were 5,000? I mean, what would it look like if they had that big a decrease in potential Their enrollment? revenues would drop. Oh, it would be unbelievable. Incredibly. I mean, it would be staggering what would happen to that model. Um, but that's where we've got to end up. Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal wrote one of the most interesting articles on student loan forgiveness that I've read. And he goes exactly where I've said, let's go. It's not... The, the kid, I mean, the kid borrowing the money, I mean, the kid has culpability. That's the word we've used. There is some blame. The, the family who didn't want that kid to fall through the cracks, I get it. I mean, we've all tried to defend that decision. I mean, I don't think there's, uh, I mean, I don't think there's immorality there. I don't think a kid borrowing money to go to college or a family agreeing to allow a kid to borrow money to go to college, not knowing if he can pay it back or not, that's not immoral. I'm sorry. I mean, if you go down the road of, well, this is an immoral decision, the family, no, stop with that. I mean, it's a very normal decision that someone would make if they're afforded that opportunity and not have to come out of pocket. I mean, how many of you wouldn't do that? Of course you would. I mean, there are a few saints out there. I ain't one. I mean, I'd get way out over my skis if given the opportunity. I've done it with the bank, much less the government guaranteeing some of the debt. But Jason Riley says um, that, that the problem is not... Um, what, what's, I mean, the problem is what education costs, but, but the problem is what I've said. We, we've got too many kids going to college. What we got about four or 5 million, uh, probably 4 million kids annually. I said 3 million several years ago. I've upped it. I mean, I think it's 4 million kids a year going to college that don't need to go to college. It's not the kind of experience. It's not a value proposition. It just doesn't make any sense for them to go. And, um, and Jason Riley really breaks this down. Mike, I want to take a break. I want to come back. I don't want to read his article. I mean, it's it's well written. It's extremely um, interesting. But um, but but he kind of goes in some of the um some of the details and specifics. Uh, I text with two friends of mine, both on boards of universities here in South Carolina, and they said well, we can't abolish the program because poor kids have to have a way to go to college. Riley says, ain't many poor kids going to college anyway. I mean, there really aren't. I mean, that number's in decline because it's become so expensive and some people are afraid of the debt. I mean, you t- start thinking about a little bit of morality and judgment and, and some, of the, um, some of the specifics of which you have to base your decision upon. Take a break. Back in just a minute. When the Wall Street Journal writes a couple of articles every day about student debt forgiveness, it's a big deal. But the Wall Street Journal doesn't dwell on a subject. They don't find, I mean, they, they'll, they'll kind of move on to the next. It's Ukraine one day, it's, you know, Biden's um, disastrous speech the other day, it's the Marines standing guard. I mean, the Wall Street Journal editorial board and some of the opinions, the op-eds, I mean, they just kind of move on. I mean, it's, you know, we'll talk about this for a day or so and then we'll, and then we'll move on. Well, Biden forgave student debt better than a week ago, and Jason Riley is still writing about it. He's one of the leading writers 
at the and Wall that Street tells Journal. You something? That tells me a lot. Now, but that tells me a lot that these folks are really beginning to sink their teeth into this. And I still, for the life of me, can't understand why Republican leadership is not doing some of the same. 95% of Americans didn't know that they were on the hook for a certain percentage of student debt. 90% of all student debt. Riley says in his article, and this is well-spoken or well-written, as a policy matter, the objective shouldn't be to funnel as many high school graduates as possible into college. Rather, it should make college available to anyone who has something meaningful to gain from that experience. I mean, that's well said. I mean, that's very that's moderate. I mean, that's not extreme about anything. That's not throw the bums out. It's a scam. It's a scheme. It's a racket. I mean, that's left to people like me. But Riley is a very thoughtful writer. Um, he talks about four of ten college graduates are working in jobs that don't require a college degree. He also talks about the misnomer that, you know, this is all about poor kids. I mean, student debt, borrowing money, families that have money don't borrow the money. Families that don't have the money do borrow the money. Um, So he says, I mean, he's done a lot of research here. Graduates from the bottom 25% of the income distribution in 1970 made up 12% of all students. Today, it's about 10. So that number's in decline. So only 10% of all student debt forgiveness would affect the people in the bottom 25% in income distribution. That's the great misnomer. Once again, emailing or texting with a friend of mine yesterday who sits on a university board, he said they're not going to abolish the program, you radical right-winger, you. I mean, he didn't say that, but he inferred that. I mean, I heard it loud and clear um, that they're simply going to modify it in some way, shape, or form. I said, well, they just modified it. I mean, they just made a major modification to it. Um, and and I, here's the problem. Uh, this is a bit arrogant of me to say, but most of these folks don't know what they're talking about. I mean, they really don't. I mean, they, they believe what the administration of the university says. If you went to a board member at a major university and said, hey, do you know what they did to the income-driven repayment system, the modification made? They'd say, what is the income-driven repayment system? I mean, what are you talking about, the IDR? Uh, very few people would have any understanding of that. Um, how many faculty members in America at major universities have ever heard of the income-driven repayment system? And I tried to explain to my friends yesterday, and these are, these are ethical souls. I mean, these are very moral people. Um, I said, well, the, the, the $300 billion we're talking about is only for the forgiveness of the debt and the potential forgiveness of Pell Grants that if you don't meet certain requirements, the Pell Grant can convert into a loan. I mean, it's kind of weird the way some of the language is that there are certain clawbacks. I mean, it'd be like an economic development incentive. We'll, we'll give you the money if you do X, Y, and Z. If you don't, then there's some clawback provisions. You got to give the money, give the money back. So it's it's a it's a grant with a with a provision, but but that's the three hundred billion dollars. When you start looking at the modifications to the income driven repayment model, it comes to about one point two trillion. Don't take my word for it. Um, the University of Pennsylvania School of Finance, the Wharton School of Finance at UPenn did a pretty deep dive. The Heritage Foundation did another dive, said about $1.35 trillion. So somewhere between $1.2 and $1.35 trillion of student debt is going to be forgiven over the next 10 years. Now, now whether it should be forgiven or not, I mean, that, that's a fair debate. How do we forgive it? What do we do with it? Um, but, but why would we do this and nothing else? I mean, I think that's what Riley's trying to say. Why don't we forgive the student debt? I mean, we're thirty trillion in debt. What is thirty-one trillion? What is thirty-one point two trillion? Let's say the Heritage Foundation's right. 
I mean, what's 1.3 to completely and totally reform a system that is creating enormous amounts of debt and not really serving the public well? I didn't say college is not worth anything. I mean, I would never say that. That would be absurd, irresponsible for me to suggest that college is worth nothing. But the answer has to be the privatization of student debt. I mean, that's got to be where we end up. The auto manufacturers have set up their own finance companies. I mean, I know some have reverted to, to the um, the older go-to-the-bank model, but remember GMAC, Ford Motor Credit? I mean, why do they do that? Did they do that to finance homes or home equity lines? I mean, how many of you have borrowed a, how many of you have financed your lawnmower with Ford Motor Credit or with GMAC? I mean, they did it to, to basically help consumers pay for cars. I mean, that was the model. Um, they're in the business of selling cars. You're in the business of buying cars. So they wanted to make it easier and make some profit. You know, the margin between uh, that they had capital on hand, they could charge you seven or whatever the market rate was to, to, you know, to finance a car for four years. They took into account how many would probably go south and never be repaid. Some of the write-off percentages. Um, why can't colleges and universities do the same thing for potential students? I mean, there's got to be some way to get at this. I mean, I've, I've read every opinion you can imagine. Reason Magazine is a libertarian publication. They believe go after the endowments. I mean, if the school doesn't begin addressing some of the um, inefficiencies of its model, then go after their not-for-profit status. I mean, they, you know, the Republicans have to get in gear yeah, on this. And these ideas. It is a winner. It, I mean, look, guys, if I can do this, with my feeble mind, surely some of the brightest people in America can get to work on how to better reform the way we're allowing kids to borrow these enormous amounts of money and get a degree from said university in said field of expertise. Back in a minute. I want to make clear, but before we go to the next step of this, I want to make clear that I in no way, shape, or form am insulting the 44, 5, 6, 7, 50 million people who have student debt. I mean, you know, maybe there's some shame with this. My, how in the world did I ever end up owing, you know, this much money for this degree? We're all stupid to some degree. We all do insane financial things. I mean, I've done a hundred of those sorts of things. Student debt just doesn't happen to be one of those. But I mean, I, I've made decisions in my life in retrospect. How did I think that made any sense? So there's no guilt nor shame associated with this. I think you were duped. I mean, I think you bought into a narrative that was inconsistent with reality, but I understand how easily it is to do that. And I'm speaking particularly to the parents. I mean, I've got as much as I rail against student debt and the value or not of higher education, I've got a daughter right now at the University of South Carolina Dartmouth School of Business, and I'm paying a pretty substantial amount of money to have her there. Why? I love her. And despite what my sensibilities tell me, there's a practicality out there that kind of makes me more at ease knowing she's doing what she's doing. Uh, if I were a real renegade cowboy, I'd say, you're not going to college. You're going to go challenge the world. You know what I mean? You're going to go tackle the world on your own merits and, and not have to go. No, but, but I mean, I, so, so I'm not, I'm not by any way or in any way stretch of the imagination. I'm not insulting people. I'm trying to not insult people. The system is so deeply flawed is what I'm trying to raise awareness of. I mean, the, the fact that the, the universities, I mean, and I don't blame the college presidents. I mean, I mean this with all sincerity. I mean, if someone gave us an opportunity to charge more for radio ads than they were probably really worth, we'd probably take them up on it. I mean, the market would allow for those sorts of things to happen. And I think you've got to pri prior, excuse me, privatize student debt. Uh, I just thought a second ago, 
I walked into the studio and told Rev, I said, Rev, I'll tell you what I'd do. If I were king of the world, I'm not, but what I, what I would do, I'd sell the $1.7 trillion in student debt to Goldman for $800 billion, $900 billion, whatever we can negotiate. Interesting. And, and let them sell it, let them collect whatever they could. They'd make $100 billion. The taxpayer would be on the hook for, let's say, $700 billion. But let's say you got the, the government goes to Goldman and says, we got this $1.7 trillion in debt. We know we're not going to ever collect it all. We'll sell it to you for $800 billion. We believe you can collect $900 billion. The Goldman would go to work and evaluate and do some sort of analysis. They'd come back and say, tell you what, we can't give you $800 billion. We'll give you $710 billion. I mean, whatever that number is. And you write down that debt, you're still left holding the bag of a trillion, but that's better than $1.7 trillion. Or maybe it's $900 billion. Maybe Goldman makes a, a decision that we can pay you $900 billion. They try to sell it for $980 billion. You see where I'm headed? I mean, a lot of people have bought distressed assets. I mean, debt being one of those assets. Um, collection agencies do this to some degree. Citibank, I mean, does a lot of that sort of negotiating. That They buy distressed debt, um, debt that they don't believe will be collected. They'll try to aggressively collect a percentage of that. Now, now once again, when you put that debt in the hands of Goldman Sachs, you probably have to rework some of the, um, well, I mean, it's not dischargeable in, in bankruptcy court. So you've already taken care of that. Uh, that There could be a potential negotiation from one of these huge Wall Street firms and the government and, and then you kind of go from there. The, the problem that I see, Reb, it's not whether we're forgiving the debt or not. It's not whether we're transferring the debt or not. We're doing nothing about the system that has allowed us to get here. That, that's my concern. Let, let, let's agree to give, I mean, once again, I think there is some, so, some morality and, 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 and other sorts of things with forgiving all of the debt. But in the name of practicality and pragmatism, I'm willing to explore that if, we're, if we go down the road of privatizing the industry of student debt, forcing universities and higher education to market correct, live in not the exact same world that we do. I mean, I think that's a little bit insincere to say universities should live just like we live. No, I mean, I think there's some, there's some differences about how they operate, but we can't allow this current model to continue. We can't afford to allow the current model to continue in its current construct. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Hey, good morning. So I think we, we are agreeing on, on some of this, but I wanted to make a couple of points um, for because there's a lot of experts on student debt all of a sudden. Um, but I should say, you know, the, the greatest experts on poverty are not economists. It's poor people. And and I want to clear a couple of things up, but, you know, you were on it when you were talking about poor people. You know, the government wanted to subsidize lower-income people going to college, and the bank said, that's a horrible model. It will not work. We can't make those loans. We can't loan money to people who don't have money, who don't have credit, who don't have, you know, I know you want to loan on, you know, their future, their bright future that we're going to give them in school, but, but, but the bank said, this won't work for us. So the federal government came in and took it over. Um, that's really what it boils down to. The bank said, you have a failed system, and the federal government said, we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. It was doomed from the start, and the people who understood loans told them so. But we do this in a lot of other places. See, you know, when the federal government told the banks, we want you to loan money for houses to poor people and people with bad credit, they said, this model won't work. We'll go out of business. They said, fine, we'll do it. We've got an unlimited source of funds. That's always been the posture of the federal government. There's a lot of places where the federal government, you know, used to be we said the government shouldn't go out and compete 
in the private market with businesses. But that's all they do anymore. Every time the federal government can't strong arm a group of people to do what they want them to do, they just come in and compete with them and take over the whole sector. I went back and looked on my credit report, and I want to correct you on something. The debt is not guaranteed by the federal government. The debt is held by the federal government. Because years ago, I'm, I'm an older guy, when I took out my student loans, the first student loans I took out were with a bank. That bank was paid in full. That trade line is closed with a zero balance on my credit report, and I owe the U.S. Department of Education, not an intermediary. So it is that money has indeed already been spent. It's not going to be spent. It's not going to be collected. That's a nuance, but it's a bit of a difference. I want to make sure I understand that. They're not guaranteeing these loans. They hold them. They've already written the check for them. And every time now that you borrow money from a school, the federal government is writing the check, not a bank that's getting a guarantee from the federal government. So, so let's stop the you there, Larry. I, let's make sure everybody understands that the federal government is not the co-signer. They're the bank. That is correct. Okay. They are the lender. They are the lender. So this money has already been spent, and it will, it, like you said, in every minute of every day. Today they will sign new promissory notes, and they will go further into this business every day. And that's the part. This didn't solve it. And, and I can't believe the Republicans didn't fight for, okay, you want your forgiveness, you want to restructure the debt payback, fine. But we've got to stop this nonsense. Give us a hook. Give us something that says, we're going to sunset this in 2025 or in 2030, and we're going to transfer this back to the private sector, or we're only going to loan based on credit worthiness and income payback ability, not, hey, do you want a loan? Come get one. But we didn't do anything. That's the real problem, and you can be as mad at the Democrats as you want, but where were the Republicans? Where were any contrary ideas or any compromises to be made? Nothing. Soon. Right through. The federal government just did what they did, and, and Congress could have done something. They could have started a bill. Nothing. You didn't hear, they didn't even go on TV about it. But it's not 40 or 50 million Democrats that hold this. It's everybody from all political stripes and all backgrounds and all income strata, every race, every color, every creed. This one cuts across all sectors. So maybe that's why the Republicans are being quiet. But, I mean, you know, I, they make a little quip here and there about, you know, buy your $60,000 car and get your free college. But the truth of the matter is they don't have anything substantive to offer. And that's the problem is what are we going to do? And, I, hey, selling it to Goldman is one thing, but here's my question. Under what structure? Under the original structure or under the new structure? Because Goldman might not want it. Who knows? You know, if you're on an IDR plan... Are you going to wipe that out? You'll snatch that back? What are you going to do to the 40, 50 million people? I've always heard my, my, my daddy say, you can always lighten up, but you can never tighten up. So how do you turn this around? You can't just renegotiate the deal, or can you? You know, that's the question. Now that you've given somebody something, and, and, you know, and we can argue the morality of that, but I would also say, I need you to heap on the pile. Is it moral to pay farmers in Horry County a uh, billion dollars to not grow tobacco and sit around and polish their tractors. We do a lot of this stuff, and, and if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about all of it. 
Let's talk about the National Flood Insurance Program that gives millionaires millions and billions of dollars every time a hurricane goes through Hurricane Alley. Is that moral? Because i got to pay for that. You know, a farmer in Idaho is on the hook for your, you know, $2.7 million beach house every time Hurricane X comes through and blows it down and you rebuild one bigger because the government subsidized it. There's so many of these things. And we argue each time that we engage in these things that it's for the public good. So is there any public good that comes out of this? That's the, the question. And so if we're not, if, if the federal government's going to come and compete with businesses, what is the public good? Because giving it all away later, you know, you say it's a loan, but now it becomes basically a quasi-grant. We were, we were kind of lied to by the federal government. You know, if they can just change it on a whim and, and turn a loan to a grant and a grant to a loan and nobody knows where they stand, your consumer of that good and the people, the American taxpayer that fronted it, is it really as good for them as it was sold to them that it was? Are we better off for having all these college-educated people, yes or no? I would argue maybe not, not with the kinds of education that they've received. So I could I need my own radio show for this. I'm well, I mean, no, no. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. But the the point I want to make is this, and I think Larry would agree with me here. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate the call. Um, very interesting call. Very provocative and insightful call. Um, there are questions that aren't being asked. Larry and I probably had more of a conversation about the issue than anybody in Washington has. That's the frustration that I have. You've got one political party who has no problem with government consuming more and more responsibilities of the private sector, right? I mean, they make no bones about it. That's called the Democrat Party. The liberal movement within the Democrat Party would have no problem today forgiving all of the student debt and government further embracing whatever it took to allow every kid from every socioeconomic background to go get a college degree, whether it was worth it or not. Where is the resistance to that? Let, let, me, let me add a word here. Where is the thoughtful resistance to that? Where are the Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance's of the world? Well, that's unfair to Vance. He's not a member of the Senate. Where are the Rand Paul, Josh Hawley's of the world? Serious thinkers in the Republican Party and their ideas about, hey, man, we've got a mess here. I mean, we've, we've got an absolute mess. What do we need to do to try and begin to fix the mess? Nothing happens overnight. But how many of those conversations are we honestly having? I mean, Larry's from Florence. I'm from Pamplico. We just had a kind of a 10-minute exchange about what could or could not be done. You know, if, if Goldman, I mean, let's say hypothetically we put Goldman on the table. Let's say somebody from the government with the authority goes to Goldman and says, hey, this is kind of in your, in your field of expertise. I mean, this is in your wheelhouse, so to speak. I mean, it's going to be complicated, but you get your six or seven or eight folks in a room that you believe need to be there. I'll send my five or six or seven from the Treasury that need to be there, and let's hash out an amicable agreement. Let's get some Republican leadership. Some Demo- That is what self-governance requires, guys. And, and we don't have the seriousness amongst our governmental leaders to address these issues in a thoughtful way. That's my concern. I'm past being mad about 1.7 in student debt. There's nothing I can do about that. That, that horse has left the station. Uh, you know, that train <laughs> has left, left the barn, barn. Um, the proverbial barn. So, so I'm, I'm past that. I mean, for a moment or two, I got wrapped up in that. I mean, the moral issue. We can't let this go down. I mean, we can't allow this to happen because of the moral, I mean, the, the, the morality failure of that model. I'm past that. I've accepted 
that this is more of a issue moving forward than it is looking back. What's done is done. We screwed the pooch. I mean, there is no doubt about this. I mean, we've allowed the universities in, in America to be financed by the federal government to the tune of $1.7 trillion of student debt that will more than likely not be paid back. I mean, a percentage will, and a percentage probably has been. I mean, I don't know what the numbers is. How, you know, talking about the Troubled Asset Relief Program, you know, the lending of money to Wall Street. Wall Street paid it back with interest. And now the government took a, uh, you know, an equity stake in some of these major American companies, financial um, companies. But, but, but I'm... You, in, in all honesty, it's hard for me to do, but I'm not looking to the rearview mirror. What's done is done. I'm looking out into the future. And I think the only answer is to begin the privatization of student lending. How do we do that? How do we, how, how willing are universities? I mean, are you going to have to drag them to the table kicking and screaming? Or do you, do you know, do they just say, I don't want any part of this conversation? We, we talked yesterday. About 98% of all contributions made by people and enterprises associated with higher education was made to the Democrat. So the universities have let you know exactly where they stand. They've got no problem with the current model. I mean, they, you know, they, they're operating in a world where there's very little risk or exposure. What, what is the, Larry talked about where the money comes from. Okay, the, the government is not the cosigner, it's the bank. Who got the money? I mean, where is the money? The money went into the coffers of a university, whatever state, whatever university in whatever state, that, that money's been spent. I mean, it paid faculty, it built buildings. I mean, I, I don't know what they do with the money. I would imagine, you know, they budget accordingly. But, but the problem is we, we're doing nothing to address this. And, and there's one party who says the government is to get larger and larger, more intrusive and more intrusive, uh, in my opinion, more abusive and more abusive. And then there's a party who says, no, we got to restrict government. We got to curtail or contain government, and we're not doing that. So where where are the serious opinions by people in the Republican Party? I mean, I gave you my opinion yesterday. I don't know that I'm right. I think I am, but I would imagine the two and a half percent contributions made by institutions of higher learning to Republicans go to the leadership to make sure those kind of bills don't see the light of day. I mean, I don't know that. I can't break down. I mean, I guess I could have had enough time. I couldn't do it yesterday. But, I mean, UCAL Berkeley, the UCAL Berkeley, excuse me, the University of California University System contributed about $5 million and about another half million to special interest groups. Um, some of the Ivy League schools, two and a half, three million dollars $3 million in lobbying and, and contribution to political campaigns. About 97% of all money given to political campaigns by associates or affiliates of higher education are given to Democrats. But what about the 2.5% given to Republicans? Is that money given to a Republican to make sure these sorts of bills don't see the light of day? The one thing it sounds like Larry and I totally agree on, we can't continue what we're doing today. We can't continue to burden the taxpayer with, with $1.7 trillion, that'll be $2 trillion, then it'll be $3 trillion, then it'll be $4 trillion. Guys, student debt in America exceeds. I mean, it just kind of get your arms around this. All car debt, motor vehicle debt, cars, trucks, SUVs, um, credit card debt, home equity lines. The only debt category in America that exceeds student debt is primary residence home mortgage. I mean, that's up in the trillions and trillions and trillions, but that's what we live in. I mean, there's a hard asset there. I mean, if you owe 200 grand on your mortgage and your home's worth 180 grand, okay, the bank writes down 80 grand or 20 grand, but, but what do they do when you don't pay the student debt back? 
I mean, they don't drill a half-inch hole in your head and extract the college education out of your brain. I mean, the absurdity of the current model. And once again, it's not about the 45 or 50 million of you who have student debt. You're not liberal or conservative. You're a guy or lady who wants to get education. I get it. I mean, you've been convinced by the, uh, the, the, uh, the creators of society. You know, those in charge of saying what's good and what's not. What Who works, exactly are what the creators? I mean, the self-appointed masters of the universe. I mean, these, I mean, these people that have said, I mean, somebody shows up one day and says education's the key. And a lot of parents say, well, I mean, this guy had a nice suit and a great haircut, and he sounded like he knew what he's talking about. He was highly educated. So I can't let my kid not be educated. And one day we wake up and an education goes from $785 for a semester to Walford to $67,000 for a year at Walford. And we don't, we, we just kind of continue to keep going along and getting along. And we got to stop that. I'm not saying the answer is abolish the federal student loan program. I think that's the answer. I'm not saying the answer is the privatization of student lending. I think that's the answer, but I know what's not the answer. I know what's not working, what we're doing today. The only people winning today are the universities. They get the money. They don't care where the money comes from. I mean, they don't care who backstops the money or not, right? As long as it's not them. Why does the university not have skin in the game? I mean, if the university believes that it provides an adequate education for you to go out and gain a job, why not agree to take a percentage of your income as tuition? I mean, we've got an engineering school here. We believe, we'll, we'll bet on you. We'll, we'll front you the education and you go out and work and your employer, you individually, you send us a percentage of but, but why would the universities do that if the federal government's willing to bank it? I mean, the university would be crazy to come up with a model like that. Some Republican has to force the issue. And my frustration is no Republican has. Let's take a break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Let's go to the phone. John in Lamar. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, guys. How y'all doing today? Hey, John. Uh, you know, I really think I've, I, I got a question that I don't think I've heard asked, and uh, I really believe in, as a businessman, I really believe in simplifying things instead of overcomplicating things. And I think the student lane thing is really very overcomplicated. Uh, why, when they take out a student lane, the government's going to guarantee it? Instead of when they get a job uh, having a uh, retirement fund, why don't they have a loan payback fund first? Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, th- these are these are the sorts of ideas that need to be on the table. But but the problem is none of us have any ability to influence debate. I mean, Larry and I and John and I, we, we can have a beer and, and converse about the issues. And some good ideas. Sure. And I mean, we we speculate on some of the things we don't know. Um, there, there's a guy that, I mean, he, he worked at the Bush White House as a budget administrator, Mitch Daniel. He was the, um, he's currently the Purdue um, the chancellor at Purdue, president equivalency. But um, but Mitch Daniels has had as much to say about student debt for the past 10 years as anybody I've heard. You know how many times Purdue has raised tuition in 10 years? Zero. Hmm. Nary a time has Purdue. He's, he's more of a bureaucrat, former governor of Indiana, took a job at the Bush White House. He's now the president of Purdue University. He did an interview with NPR. And, and Mitch Daniels is not a radio show host. I mean, he's not the kind of guy that would you know, get, get into some of the um, provocative or sensational sorts of talks. But, um, but he made a comment in an interview with NPR that I listened to um, when he says, uh, 
some of the recovery has to come from the colleges and universities. The data has shown for a long time that universities and higher education have pocketed something like two-thirds of all new subsidies the federal government has provided. We've invested in higher education in, in an odd sort of way, and we've not demanded much. I mean, we really have not. Um, 40% of all student debt is owed by people who didn't graduate from college. I mean, that, that's kind of bizarre to me. Um, only 10% of people who borrow the money are what we call, you know, the 25% poorest of the American citizenry. So Mitch Daniels is basically saying, um, let me hear his words. You ready? There would be only one place to go for recovery of funds beyond those that the borrower was taken on beyond their ability to pay, and that's the university. Now, but that's where the money ended up. So, so any alternative or option that doesn't include the university having skin of the game just simply cannot work. I mean, privatization of student debt. You, you and I have talked a little bit about this. Um, privatization of student debt has to be one of the components moving forward. Another has to be university responsibility. I mean, the university has to have some skin in the game. If the university believes, if Purdue University believes in its engineering department, and they have a world-renowned engineering school, then, and let's hypothetically say the federal government abolishes student loans. Let's say some uh, Billy Badass in a Republican Party gets elected president, and he's got the guts and gumptions to go after things that really need to be on the table. I mean, he, he's going to eviscerate so some of the abnormalities that have been normalized in, in American politics, and, and out of that come a reformation, a complete and total disruption of the current model as to how we fund kids going to college. We don't need kids not going to college. Of course we need. I don't think we need 20 million going to college. We probably need 13 or 14 million, and Jason Riley talks a lot about that, um, that we've got to, I mean, his word's not mine. Uh, the objective shouldn't be to funnel as many high school grads into college as possible, Rather, it should be make college available to anyone who has something meaningful to gain from that experience. Four of 10 college graduates work in jobs that don't require a degree. 40% of college debt is owed by someone who didn't graduate from college. And we continue to allow these to be normalized. There's nothing normal about that. If this was a business I mean, the, the red flags are everywhere. There'd be, a, there'd be an emergency meeting of the board of directors tomorrow. Everybody would fly in, and somebody would explain how, how these nuances within this model are allowed to continue to exist. But the government says, well, I mean, you know, everybody needs to get a copy. It, it's, it's almost it's so interesting to me to listen to sound minds try to rationalize how we got here and why there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, once again, friends of mine, will say, well, I mean, you got you, you can't change the model. I mean, the federal government's always got to be in the business of higher education. Why? I mean, why is that? I mean, to me, it's, it's abnormal for the government to be in the business of higher education. Um, and Mitch Daniels says there's only one place to look for recovery of funds. There's $1.7 trillion out there somewhere in the ether, right? I mean, some, some of that will be paid back. It's not fair to say that it's a $1.7 trillion bailout. I mean, some people have medical degrees, law degrees, business degrees. They'll be able to pay their debt back. Let's say half of it. Let's say half of the student debt is bad debt. So we had 1.7. So for argument's sake, let's say $850 billion is bad debt. Who's responsible for the $850 billion of bad debt? I mean, to me, it's the government and the universities. I mean, they, they created the money to be spent. 
the government, I mean, the university's got the money. The last culprit in this scenario is the taxpayer, right? I mean, to me, right. the taxpayer has no responsibility in this arrangement or, or agreement. Uh, Larry's exactly right. This is not about liberal kids or or conservative kids or rich kids or poor kids or or kids from South Carolina, kids from California. I mean, these are kids across the spectrum. I mean, they, these are kids from every walk of life, from every socioeconomic background. And I think the kids and families were duped. But it's easy to be duped when you're betting on your kid. I mean, it's easy to to, to, to believe. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it. You've done it. I mean, we, we all have kids, and we want the best for those kids. And society has convinced us that the kid is not going to have a bright enough future if they don't get that degree. Now, that's hard to stomach. That's hard to grapple with. I think college is extremely overrated. Where's my daughter today? In college. So I'm somewhat hypocritical when I say that college is extremely overrated. Now, the one thing I did do is insist to require of her a commitment to go into some sort of program that will enable her to find a job and make a good living. I mean, that's what the investment I'm making, I'll get a return or she'll get the return on that, that, that investment. I don't need a return on her investment. She's my daughter. I mean, that's what daddies do for their sons and daughters. That's what moms do for their sons and daughters. You sacrifice so they can have a better life. I mean, somebody did it for me. My mom and dad did it for me. Um, some I failed, some I succeeded. Uh, my kids are no different than anybody else's his kids. But, but to believe that the taxpayer has a responsibility in this is absurd. And it's pretty arrogant. I mean, here's the arrogance of all of this. The arrogance comes from the elected officials believing that they have a right to expose the American taxpayer to this potential liability. I mean, that's bizarre to me. And once again, it is different than Medicare. It is different than Medicaid. It is different because somebody entered into a binding contract. Somebody signed a binding contract to say, I owe this much money. We, we've got to renegotiate what the realities are in this scenario. And Mitch Daniels, who is a college president, says that there's no doubt where you look at or, or who to look to for the recovery of these funds. It is the university that got the funds. Um, it's just a bizarre argument to make that the taxpayers have any responsibility in this. I get what others are saying. And as a practical matter, I'll accept. Well, we've done it before. I mean, the government has backstop debt, I mean, for a lot of crazy things. And, and that kind of goes back to the preamble yesterday. Somewhere in our confusion, promoting the general welfare of a nation became providing for the general welfare of a nation. I think the American taxpayer embrace the opportunity to promote the general well-being or welfare of our nation. I don't think they have a responsibility to provide for the general welfare of our nation. Let's go to the phone. Karen in Florence. Good morning, Karen. Hi, Ken. I'm calling because my daughter went to grad school the first time, probably 15 years ago, to a private university. And you're going to love her major. It's your favorite major, Shakespeare and Renaissance liter- literature and performance. <laughs> um, so there was no job, of course, forthcoming when she graduated. Um, She eventually went back, got a second master's degree where they paid her to go to school. Now she's got a great job. She lives in L.A. She's paying her loans. Um, She originally borrowed $69,000. And when she went in and signed all that, I mean, she signed this stuff at the school. But 
her loans now are like five or six different loans. There, there seems to be private. There seems to be government. It's kind of all inclusive. She took out sixty-two thousand dollars as of today. She's paid back. I mean, she borrowed sixty-nine. As of today, she's paid back sixty-two thousand dollars, which is just seven thousand short of the original principal. She still owes eighty-four thousand dollars. Wow. Now. If she were to pay it off today, that's $153,000 on the original 69000 That's where the reform needs to come in is the interest. See, I would, I would absolutely be for that. I mean, it, it's, it, in a sense, it's predatory lending. I mean, it really is. I mean, when you, when you break it, I mean, if, if you really try to go down that road, thank you for the call to appreciate. Uh, and I've heard a lot of those stories. I mean, we had people walk in the studio. Uh, we'll leave unnamed. And we'll talk about student debt for a day or so. They said, hey, I listened to yesterday when you talked about student debt. Let me tell you what happened to my kid. Let me tell you what about my brother's kids. Uh, it's, it's a similar story to what you just heard there a second ago. But yeah, let's put some of the lending requirements on the table, some of the payback mechanisms, um, 0% interest. How about that? How about let's forgive half the debt? How about that? Um, we, we've got two problems. We've got a problem that is because of what we did, and we probably we got another problem, and I think the bigger problem is what is to come, because in this income-driven repayment modification, we basically give the university the authority to charge even more if they choose to. We've taken a lot of the moral hazard out of the equation by paying off some of the debt. So, so will they pay off more of the debt? I think they will if Democrats win. I mean, if you're somebody who owes student debt, why would you pay the debt? Wait and see what the government is going to do uh, around the bend. But, but in the income driven repayment model, you, you basically, I mean, once again, you've given the university no reason to cut cost, no reason to market correct. In fact, you've given them, given them an incentive to charge even more. So as part of what is and what was, and uh, once again, you got two problems, what is because of what we did and what is to become because of what we won't do. Let, let's segregate those problems. Let's get to work on what is because of what we did and let's help these kids who have paid $69,000 in interest, been taken advantage of, um, the, the families of the kids who have been taken advantage of, because they have been taken advantage of. And I, and I don't know who to blame for convincing. It's a little bit, I mean, this is where I get philosophically conflicted. I mean, ultimately, it's your responsibility to be responsible, right? I mean, to make good decisions or bad decisions. I mean, that, that's kind of the gift that, that you have. I mean, you have the right to make good decisions. You also have the right to make bad decisions. And... The moral hazard part of this philosophically is what I struggle with, but I want to fix it. And as part of fixing it, I'm willing to forgive some of what we did because I think some of the people that are most complicit have been held harmless. But I'm more interested in what we're going to do to make sure the problem doesn't exacerbate itself. And what Joe Biden did a couple of weeks ago is only going to make the problem worse. Student debt will increase at a faster rate than it ever has. Now, now, here's the cold, hard truth. Can universities exist with 20% fewer students? I don't care. And probably not all of them. But I mean, of course they can't. I mean, there's no way. What, what adjustments will have to be made? We talked about the NIL and college football. What happens to the University of South Carolina or Clemson's football team if they don't have 7,000 incoming freshmen every year? They only have 5,000. I mean, I get the SEC financial arrangement. I get the television money. And I get, you know, everybody goes to Death Valley and rubs the rock and loves their time. I get all that. I mean, I understand that. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, um, the nostalgic part of the college experience, you know, pulling for the home team. I get all that. But what happens to those universities 
when 20%, 25% fewer students show up on a given year? I mean, how many climbing walls are disassembled? How many dorms are converted to private residences? How many administrators are laid off? How many teachers lose their job? It's not a real model. I mean, it's a business that has been propped up by government intervention. It's a little bit like the housing market with subprime lending. I mean, nobody's, I mean, a house that was worth $200,000 last year is not worth $300,000 this year. I mean, that's impractical. It's irresponsible to believe that. A college education that, that has increased eight times the rate of inflation, 10 times the rate of inflation, 305% since 1980. I mean, do we believe a college education is worth that much more today than it was in 1980? It's probably worth less because there was some exclusivity in higher education in 1980. About 21% of the public had a college degree. Today, it's about 34%. So we're charging kids for something that is less, less exclusive a most exclusive price. It's got to be reformed, guys. We have to be honest about where we are, how we got here, and how do we move forward. And the colleges aren't going to like it because they're going to be the big losers, and they should be. They absolutely should be. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning. Uh, I don't know how those laws, the You've heard of the Lemon Law, Ken? I have. Well, I don't know if that's like an official, what they call it, but I don't, I'm not real familiar with it. But understand, right, if you purchase an automobile and there's enough defects with it, then you just get your money back. And, you know, well, I don't understand why these colleges aren't held responsible for this money. I mean, if, if you sell me, uh, and that's what they're doing, you sell me a degree that makes me you know, $11 an hour, <laughs> and I got to pay you back $100,000. That's defective, Ken. I mean, that, I don't, and I know you've you mentioned this over and over again about the, the, the universe is not on the hook, but I don't understand why reasonable thinking people, you know, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're smart enough, you do well enough in high school, which is free, you get a dang scholarship and you still ain't got to pay. So not only are these this this money is obviously going that these loans going to non scholarship people, that means they're they're loaning money to the people that weren't smart enough to get a damn scholarship. Why why only half the country makes sense out of that, Ken? Oh, by the way, I didn't see you at the game. I hunted for you. I hollered around, Kenar! Kenar! And I, nobody ever answered. I tried to find you at the game. Thank you, you were there, right? Yeah, I was there. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. <laughs> I think I must have been a long way from you. you yeah, that, that, I would have heard it. I think I would have. But I had a football game on and a little Bob Dylan in the background, so it would have been hard for me to um, to hear. You know, I, I don't know about the lemon law and how that applies. Um, people make a conscious decision about college. You know, families get together in consultation with the guidance counselor at the high school or, you know, uh, uh, someone they trust in their life, some figure in their life that they hold in high regard and they make a decision as to whether to do X, Y, or Z. Um, but the decision shouldn't be exclusive to the family. They should be at the mercy of the marketplace. It doesn't matter that everybody wants to go to college, right? I mean, I want to play in the NFL. That there are certain requirements. <laughs> I didn't meet those requirements. I'm not an NFL football player. There's nothing I would have rather done in my life than to be an NFL player. Somebody has to tell a kid, no, college is not for you. 
Um, let's let's start to work on this in K through 12. In the eighth or ninth grade, let's identify these kids that probably aren't going to college. There's no shame in that. There's no embarrassment in that. Now, now culture and society have suggested that that's a lesser life if you don't go to college. Um, <laughs> somebody tell Bill Gates that. I mean, I think he dropped out. Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, there are a lot of these guys that drop out of college that, that do just fine. Um, it, what, we, what we did created what is. And what is is a mess. And we're going to continue what we did moving forward. And that's absurd. And the reason that I think we're continuing down that road, Reb, is there not thoughtful resistance to this way of doing business. Everybody doesn't deserve to go to college. Everybody doesn't need to go to college. 17% of America's population has an IQ less than 86. How many people with an IQ less than 86 need to go to college? These are stern facts, so they're uncomfortable. And I'm not calling anybody dumb or smart because I think intelligence is one thing, and I think abilities and experience and and savviness, there are a lot of other ways to skin a cat. But but why are we letting how many kids with an IQ less than 90 are going to college and how many should? These are cold, hard facts that we must come to grips with. Why? You made it a public issue. I mean, when the government begins paying for it, it's everybody's business, whether you went to college or not. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, fellas. Um, I think the indoctrination to go to college, to be pushed to college, happens uh, far sooner than people think it does. It happens as, as young as kindergarten. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with where people disrespect the, the working class now. They want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. I had a friend of mine, had a guy I know, his kindergartner was given a, <clears throat> a chore to do on what job he wanted to do when he grew up, what he wanted to be. And he put down that he wanted to work at the paper mill like his daddy. So the guy I know was called into the school. And the teacher was liberal, and uh, he was called into the school, and they were so apologetic and, and, and was like, hey, look, we're so sorry that your son put down that he wanted to work at paper mill. All these other kids put down that they wanted to be a doctor and a lawyer, and I know you must feel ashamed. Well, the guy looked at him and said, hey, look, one, I'm the chief electrical engineer at the paper mill. Two... I got guys that drive the trash truck that make more money than both of y'all put together. And Thank I'll you. take it off air. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. I mean, that, you know, it goes back to the work smart, not hard. You know, the uh, the post from the guidance counselor's office at, at dear old Hannah Pamplico High School. I mean, it, it, I still go back to that a lot. And, um, and we try to convince young people. And, uh, you know, I don't know who's behind this. I don't know if it's just the way it is or there was a – a concerted effort. Um, you got to if you're in the if you're in the business of higher education or, or you're ancillary to that. Let's say you're a complementary business to higher education. I'll give you an example. Let's say you own a a fast food restaurant near Clemson, near the university, and a a Republican or a Democrat, you know, give a speech. Well, I mean, once again, now you own three fast food restaurants in a college town. You're you're pretty. I mean, you're probably pretty conservative by nature because you're in the business world. 
Um, you know, the government's not your friend more times than not. Um, you're running those restaurants and you've got a chance to vote for a U.S. Senator. One of the senators comes out and says, we've got too many kids going to college. We need to reduce uh, enrollment at universities all over the country. Clemson, Carolina are no different. Instead of 7,000 incoming freshmen in South Carolina, 4,000 or 5,000 is the right number. Instead of 4,000 at Clemson, it needs to be 2,500 or so. You're running those three fast food restaurants. And once again, you're conservative by nature. You're a business person. 77% of American businessmen and women vote Republican. I'm not talking about big corporate America. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about business owners. There's a difference in owning a business and running a business. Um, Jamie Dimon is probably the best banker in America. He doesn't own J.P. Morgan. I mean, his name's not J.P. Morgan. So Jamie Dimon has a perspective, not as a business owner, but someone who runs a multinational conglomerate. But the business owners are overwhelmingly Republican. But what if you're that Republican business owner and you own those three fast food restaurants and they're all located uh, near the Clemson College? And if there are 18, 19, 20,000 students at Clemson, you're doing a million dollars a year at each one of your fast food joints. If that number goes down to 12 or 13,000, you're doing about $700,000 in each of those restaurants. So you're taking on the chin at about 300,000 per restaurant, 900 grand in overall revenue. I mean, you kind of scratch your head there, don't you? Are you going to vote against well, your I mean, business interests? That, that's the way government does it. I mean, I'm not saying they intentionally do that. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I mean, I do think there are certain things they do that are obviously nefarious in action, but there's some things that you just kind of like, wow, man. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a conservative business owner, but I've got these business interests that are better the more kids that are at Clemson. So I agree with you on all of these other things, but I don't want you messing with that enrollment at Clemson or South Carolina. So we continue to let the the scam, the fraud, the scheme um, perpetuate itself. That That's kind of how you get in some of these boxes we talk a lot about. Um, that There is no doubt that there are many, many, many people working jobs today in America with student debt that should have never gone to college. Some of the job didn't require a college, and I keep using the game warden as an example, um, that there are many jobs out there, but it really goes back to the Greek case. Um, it's kind of interesting, Reb. Uh, the National Review has a, um, a section called Greatness Agenda. Excuse me, American Greatness has a, uh, a section called American, excuse me, Greatness Agenda. And I read an article the 22nd of, um, that would have been the 22nd of August, so a couple of weeks ago when I read this article, and it was about some of what we talked about several weeks ago uh, about the Griggs case, and that's how we ended up where we are today. The, the point they're trying to make is the, the Griggs versus Duke Power case made it illegal for, I mean, they said it violated the civil rights legislation of 1964, made it illegal for Duke Energy or Duke Power then to test people for their intelligence as to whether they can move up in the business or not. In other words, you got a job, it's a requirement, uh, it's a better job, it's a little, it takes a little better skill set. Um, we need to make sure you can do that. So, Jim, um, Dave, Ken, take this IQ test, and then we'll find out whether you have the aptitude to do that job because it's a little more complex and complicated. I mean, I've led, I, I've convinced myself that that's why colleges interceded. Colleges saw an opportunity at some point in time to say, hey, we'll take the place of the IQ test. 
let, let, let's let's take the i mean it, we can't do the iq test any longer uh adverse i mean there's some adverse effect language in here's a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo but but as a result of the griggs the 1971 case adverse impact there you go it had an adverse impact on certain racial groups because of racial differences in iq testing results and therefore was determined to be discriminatory under the civil rights legislation of 1964. So the civil rights legislation of 64 led to the lawsuit of 71, and we were no longer allowed to give IQ tests to see whether Dave Baker can go from sweeping the floor to running a computer or running a big milling machine or uh, a generator. I don't know, a nuclear reactor. I don't know, whatever kind of job they have internally within the company. Um, that may be the way out. Of the reestablishment of an IQ test, that that may be the way out. Now, once again, you'd have to find another judge to take on a case and say it's not racially discriminatory. Um, I want to read this sentence because I think I mean this paragraph because I think it's pretty interesting. And then we'll get to the phone. The Griggs case did not bar employers from demanding college degrees, even though there is an adverse impact there as well, effectively making colleges into monopolies. I mean, I don't want to say I told you so, but I've talked about this three or four or five years ago. Um, this caused college degrees to become legal substitutes for the kind of testing that employers have not been able to conduct since the 1970s. In turn, employers demanded college degrees for jobs that don't require college edu education. Workers acquiesced in massive debts in order to show these capabilities that colleges raised prices due to the demand of people seeking job credentialing. I mean, that's kind of what it is. It's not showing whether you're smart or not. You're now credentialed, and that's good enough. Is Dave Baker any smarter? 36% of people that went to college show no advancement in learning of any sort. Better than one of three kids who go to college, when they begin, when they end, they're tested. They show no aptitudinal advancement. Really? I mean, they learn how to do their laundry. I mean, they, they know where the local watering hole is. They, they've now got loyalty to a college football program. But as far as them learning, now once again, two-thirds did. Let, let, let's remember that. Two-thirds did. So if you go to Clemson to be an engineer or prepare to go to med school, I mean, you would be one of the two-thirds. But one-third of all kids who went to college didn't get any smarter, didn't learn a whole lot from the time they got there until the time they left there. I've got a couple of theories. They don't give a rat's ass. They went to drink, smoke, dope, and chase girls or chase boys, or they're just not smart enough. We like to believe, as a society that doesn't like to offend anybody, we like to blame it on the former. You know, Ken had potential. He just went up there and drank too much and chased girls. Instead of, yeah, Ken just might not be smart enough. He might not have had any business going to college anyway. But now everybody gets in. Nobody pays for it. I've told this story a hundred times, and I think it's the best illustration I can give. When I moved my daughter to Carolina, and I'll never forget this, I'm at the bursar's office. That's where you square up, as we like to say in the country. There was nobody there. The lights were off. I, I thought I'd walked into a nightclub. I mean, I was waiting on a burlesque dancer to come out of the corner. I mean, seriously. I mean, this is the place you pay your bill. It was me and about five or six uh, university employees. Two were asleep. One had their computer watching, I don't know, golf or something. But nobody was in there. So when I walk in and say, hey, where do I pay for tuition? They were like, do what? Pay, <laughs> pay for tuition? Really? I mean, it, it was bizarre to me. So, so there are a million kids 
There are U-Haul trucks and rental trucks everywhere. There's movers and there's parents and there's, I mean, it's like the craziest thing you could imagine until I walked into the burlesque nightclub. And then there's nobody there except these four or five university employees and yours truly. They had to turn the lights on, start the computers up. Okay, you want to pay. Um, it was just, and that's when I said, okay, I get it now. I've heard about it. Now I really, really understand uh, the stark realities. Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike, you're on the air. Hey, man. Um, that uh, that kind of rolled into my, convert, my, my comment earlier with uh, you're talking about the, the uh, getting the, the lawsuit for the IQ test. Most companies now, or a, a bunch of companies now, go through what they call the test key, I believe it's called, program, where you go in and you test. Um, and it, it fundamentally is an IQ test. And I'll tell you about Nucor Steel because I've, I've been through their, their program and, you know, and got into it. Nucor Steel, uh, about once a year, about every two to two and a half years, I believe, how often they do that, they will qualify X number of people. In other words, they'll put 250 people or whatever into the hiring pool. Now, they do that by first putting out the call, everybody apply, and they'll get 2,500, 3,000 people apply. And those who apply, they go to tech, uh, and they'll, they'll sit through this, this uh, test, test key scores. Is, is that, am I saying that right? That's correct. That's the word. That's the test keys. Okay. They go through that process, and then they weed out. You know, it's basically a dummy test. I mean, it's a basic, basic IQ test just to weed out all the dummies. And then once you get through that, they put like five or 600 or whatever top scores. You go through an interview process, but you're interviewing with employees of Nucor who volunteer to do this, um, not HR. They, these are the people you'll be working with, and they want to know if you got any sense and what kind of person you are. And then once you get through that, they, you get the final cut. I think it's two interviews. Um, they put you into the hiring pool. And then uh, somebody in the plant, a manager, needs somebody on his shift. He can go and look and look down that list. Oh, I know Mike. I'll hire Mike. And he can, he can pull me in and say, here, he can interview me or he can hire me straight up. But let me tell you what they did about 25 or 7 years ago. Newcore said, if we're going to pay these monster salaries, $85,000, $90,000 a year walking in the door, we're going to hire only college graduates. And what they found out, and this is somebody that used to work in HR out there, what they found out is these college graduates, they would they would fail out. I mean, they would hire them, they'd come in, and they couldn't hack the work because it's nasty and it's hot and it's dangerous and it's and it's you know it's a lot of work. So they said, man, screw that. Those uh, college graduates, I mean, those college people come in here, they work six months, eight months, and leave. Said we want somebody that knows this is the best opportunity he can have, and he's willing to come in here and bust his, his butt for us. And that, that program's been very successful now, and they're very high-paying jobs. So not, everybody, not all college needs to work, and not all workers need college. Let Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, and the, the truth is, I mean, they're kind of sort of at odds with one another. I mean, when you really think about it, the best interest of the employer and the, the worker um, is to not go to college and accumulate student debt. I mean, certain professions, I'm not saying all professions, uh, for clarity, I don't want to drive across a bridge not designed by an engineer. I don't want my heart work done by somebody who's not a cardiothoracic surgeon or a cardiologist. I mean, you know, I don't want to be represented in some legal matter by somebody who didn't go to law school. 
I'm, I'm not discounting totally the idea or notion of higher education. I mean, that, that would be absurd. I mean, I hope I've got a little more intellect than that. But, but I do believe that where we've ended up today, this is kind of interesting. Mike brought that up, that the employer and the worker would benefit greatly from not having student debt, but knowing that employee is capable of doing that job, right? Nucor decided to do some sort of specific test. Uh, they don't need rocket scientists, but they can't have dummies, right? I mean, like Mike said, if you are not a dummy, you make the next step. And then some of the other, you know, is he a hard worker? Is he is he committed to he- being here on time? Is he a likable guy? Will he be a part of a team? Uh, is this lady capable of doing some of the clerical work? Um, what are the odds she wants to start a family in two or three years and be out of work for you? know what I mean? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that go into the, into the um, I don't know, revel, the, the devil's pie of why you become a good employee or not. Um, but you can't expect these institutions of higher learning to cooperate unless we proactively enact government legislation. Here go with the Republicans, uh, aggressively contradicting what we're doing today in relation to student debt. That the only other answer, and I want to get way out here on this, we have a fairly conservative court today. I mean, if this Griggs case were to make itself back to the U.S. Supreme Court, how would they interpret the concept of adverse impact? I mean, when you really think about, I mean, you know, does it lack constitutional underpinning? Is, is it in the, um, <laughs> the the progressive ash heap of history? I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to explain what I'm talking about here, but I've played that out through uh, in my head. So, so what if somebody challenged the 71 case and some lower court picked it up and there was a redefinition, a redefining of what um, adverse, adverse impact or adverse defect is, and this conservative court said, of course a business should be allowed to give some sort of IQ test, um, a, a test to see whether you're smart enough to do this job or not. And, and the next thing you know, businesses say all these jobs, to Mike's point, that require college degrees, they don't any longer because, once again, the employer and worker can negotiate that between themselves absent of the institution of higher learning. Um, you know, Dave Baker's son goes to work at Nucor without having fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars in student debt. Isn't that better for everybody? Except whom? Universities. Except the universities. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. It's Rujan. Good morning, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh listen, that this they need to take the model from the from the military. The military has its own IQ test. It's called the ASVAB. And trust me, you know you've got you've got some some seventeen year old take the ASVAB qualifies to be a helicopter pilot, <clears throat> goes through boot camp uh, in the army. Forty three weeks later, he's flying a you know multi million dollar aircraft. I mean, it, you don't have to go to college. I don't I don't know why this model came out. I don't know why they. They say that uh, giving somebody an IQ test is is, is uh, an issue because you know we had guys that were black, Indian, didn't make a difference. They 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 took the ASVAB. Not everybody can do it. I mean, I, I don't get it. Yeah, somebody needs to. We need to revisit that really really quick because um, <clears throat> to say that uh, a, a black person. Their IQ is lower because they're black. is is kind of crazy. That that's that's nothing but racism there. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is what it is. 
And and I, I mean, I don't want to go too far down this road because I don't know what it's like to walk in the shoes of an African American. I mean, you know, in 1964, the African Americans did not have opportunities that whites did. And, you know, that could have affected. So the point I'm trying to make about revisiting the IQ reality or allowing the IQ test to be, if it was discriminatory in 64, and I, I don't know what life was like in 1964. I mean, I was one year old. I don't have any idea what sort of socioeconomic challenges blacks faced over whites. I know it was different. You got to be a moron. I mean, you've seen the pictures, you know, blacks here, whites there, water fountains, buses, you know, neighborhoods. I mean, of course there was a a practical reality that disadvantaged the black. Have we made up enough to allow the IQ test to be a fair arbiter of who can do a job or not? I mean, I'll agree that in 71, I mean, I'll agree in 64, that there was probably a reason to be more sensitive to that group of people than another. I mean, I'll accept that. I mean, without, without, I mean, I'm a conservative Republican that believes in personal responsibility, individual liberties and freedoms, but I think you've got to be foolish to not believe that things were different for blacks in the 60s than they were for whites. I mean, of course they were. I mean, that's indisputable. But have we made enough gains by 2022 to allow a an IQ test to be a fair arbiter of who can do a job and who cannot? And could there be a reinterpretation of adverse impact if the new Supreme Court, if the 2022 conservative Trump court were to get its hands on some of this legislation? My interest is this. My interest is streamlining and making more effective the relationship between the employer and the worker. Black, white, red, green, conservative, liberal, Hannah Pamplico, Red Raider, you know, South Florence Bruin, West Florence Knight, Wilson Tiger, uh, Timmonsville Whirlwind, Darlington Falcon, uh, Sumter Gamecock. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm not caught up in that. But right now, I think that the universities and these educational lenders are at odds with the efficiency of an employer-worker relationship. Nucor would be a good example. I mean, if you run a business and, and you kind of feel like you've been almost forced to um, require a college degree, you're not asking if the person's any more uh, smart, brighter, or they're more credentialed. We, we live in this credentialed society. We put a lot of faith and stock in who's credentialed and who's not. And, and once again, my loyalty is to that relationship. The economy is better when we streamline and make more efficient the arrangement between employers and workers. And I think that relationship is at odds with higher education and student debt. That's the point I'm trying to make. And once again, um, you can't expect the universities. If I ran a university, I mean, if I were college president at Clemson or Carolina or Coastal or Francis Marion or any, I would certainly protect my, my turf. I mean, I would do everything I could to make the current model remain the same, but it's not in the country's best interest. We must revisit how, I mean, just the total model of higher education in America. And once again, if I, you know, and I'm not the only one that believes this. I mean, there's some other smart people um, that believe that Griggs case in 71 kind of led down the road of the colleges saw an opportunity and they said, hey, you know, can't give an IQ test any longer. Let us be the vetting agency of whether someone can do that job or not. And um, and a four-year bachelor's degree should not be uh, a necessary right for ending adulthood. It just simply should not. That's kind of the way we've we've almost looked at it now. It, it, you know, I, I told you, Rev, when I was in the private sector, before I got into government, 
I never heard anybody say, and I'm talking about zero, never heard a single person in my life say, um, he went to Princeton. She went to Stanford. They went to UNC Chapel Hill. His brother graduated from Duke. He graduated from Georgia Tech. But when I got into the public sector, it was every other conversation. You know, where did you go? What, what do you mean? I went to Wendy's. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course you know what I mean. I mean, where did you go? What credential do you have? I said, well, I mean, I went to Walford for a summer or semester. Okay, you're on, the, you're on the blacklist. You don't matter to us anymore. You're dead to this world. You see where I'm headed? And it almost became and this necessary right. You're right. There was a certain prestige attached to that, a certain credibility that, that whether you had it or not. And, and I remember talking to people who went to all these schools and they just weren't very bright. I mean, they were highly educated, no question about it, but they weren't very bright. I've told this story before with all due respect. Um, I told my chief of staff when I got elected, I said, hey, man, I'm a, I'm a college dropout and we're in the tall weeds. I mean, this isn't county council, this isn't local government. We're up here highfalutin with the Senate, and we're dealing with lobbyists, consultants, highly educated people. You know, they've already told me they went to Duke or Stanford, Harvard, or Yale. I mean, the first time I met these people, it was always, where did you go? Nowhere. Uh, I went to Wendy's, or I went to, you know, Chipotle. Uh, where, where did you go? I went to Princeton or Yale or Stanford or, you know, UNC Law or whatever. You know, and it was like, they got to get that out of the way. They got to let you know how credentialed they are to be taken seriously. That's their problem, not mine. But, but I was convinced after a month up there th that I may be in the top 5%. I mean, that's the scary part of all this. Uh, after a month being around those people, I remember thinking, okay, they're highly educated. They're credentialed. They're pedigreed. I'm not so sure how smart any, any of these people are. But it was, I mean, it's kind of a rite of passage. You know, it's something that you, you got to put a check in that box or you're not accepted in that world. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, it's amazing. Fieldsdale College, you can go four years and graduate with no student loan debt. But they don't accept it. That way they can teach what they want to teach. And for some reason, all the kids graduate with degrees with no student loan debt. You know, when I went to school, which was 700 years ago, we had what the equivalent of what they're doing out in Iowa, and uh, Idaho is, they call it CTE, but we, it was vocational training. You know, we figured out what we like to do, and some of the guys like to do plumbing, some like uh, air conditioning, some like, you know, electrical, some like uh, HVAC, you name it. And, and we pick and choose what course of study we wanted to take, and then in the 11th and 12th grade, we were able to go, you know, at the end of the day, say two periods, and go to work as an apprentice and do the jobs that we enjoyed doing. I mean, I ended up going to work for Sunoco when, when I graduated high school, but I worked at the roller bearing mill in the 11th and 12th grade doing CMC and then set up on roller bearings. So nobody, I don't know when they stopped doing that, but hell, I took home economics, you know, and now they say, oh, that's a girly thing. 
Well, no, it's just general knowledge. I, I can feed myself. I can take care of my house. And they even taught us civics, which they don't teach no more. So I, I just don't understand why, you know, in order to improve, they want to destroy everything. And that's, you know, the, the truth is always in the light. But these people, everything they do is in darkness that we eventually find out anyway because the light is going to come through. So that's all darkness is, is the absence of light. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Hold on to that for a second. Think of this, Ray. Stick with me for a second. I need you to kind of help me walk through this. Okay. So the argument with Griggs is that it was racially unfair. I mean, it was discriminatory. Civil Rights Act of 64, um, the court decided that it was um, had adverse impact of a certain group of people who were just being discriminated against. Let, let me ask you this. So all of a sudden, we begin using the SAT test, the ACT test, to allow kids to be accepted or not into colleges and universities. You make this score, you can get into that college, make that score. I mean, we're doing away with that now. They say we're doing away with it now. But when I was going to college... Uh, you had to make a certain score to get into a certain, uh, you know, your 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 GDP mattered, or your GPA, GDP <laughs> GPA <laughs> mattered, but it didn't matter like your SAT score. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of stock put into the SAT score. So the court ruled the IQ test was unfair. The the IQ test is nowhere as unfair as the SAT or ACT. How many families have had their kids tutored, two hundred dollars an hour? Those tutors um, usually improve. I think I read one day it's 20% of the verbal, maybe 10 on the math. I mean, it's as high. I think that's the average. So so, so if you are, if you're not able to pay $200 an hour for an experienced SAT tutor, you're being discriminated against. I mean, socioeconomically. So I would argue that the SAT, the admissions process for colleges today is more discriminatory than the IQ test that the court ruled on in 1971 you see the point i'm trying and to make that's what i thought um, when you when you when you described the griggs case that's exactly what i thought because there there are entry basically intelligence tests right uh to get into college well how, it's just a it's just a roundabout way to get there and if the you're and if your family's poor how many opportunities do you have to hire a 200 dollars an hour sat or act tutor um that advantage is far less accessible for someone in the lower or lower middle class of Americans, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree to that? I mean, if you've got some money, you've done well financially, your, your kid is thinking about trying to get into one of these, you know, hard to get in universities, they need to increase their ACT or SAT score. They have the luxury or your family has the luxury of hiring a tutor, sending them off for a long weekend, exposing them to all these advantages and some of the, uh, some of the testing to get into college. Uh, some of the poor kids don't. So, so to me, that's more discriminatory than an IQ test. But once again, you're asking you're asking a model to be changed that has been unbelievably entrenched and has paid great dividends for those who have constructed the model. Here's the question and I'll move on. The the question I have is there's a reason some of the Republican leadership are not advancing the notion of destroying the current model and reforming it to something different. I mean, there's a reason. I don't know what the reason is. I'm suspicious of what the reason is. And I think the higher education cartel, some of the lobbying, consulting, and administrative state, I think they've done a good job in convincing the Republican Party, hey, 
you know, the donations will continue to trickle in as long as you don't let that legislation see the light of day. We understand that you serve a conservative constituency. We understand that your voters have certain biases. You don't have to be for maintaining the current model. You don't have to be for, as Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are, for giving all student debt, making college free and afford, excuse me, free and available to everybody, no matter what their aptitude abilities are. I mean, we understand you can't do that because of who your voters are. Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky. But Mitch, if you're ever the majority leader, just make sure that if anybody like Rand Paul or Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance introduce a bill, it doesn't see the light of day. That's my suspicion. I have nothing to base that on other than having been in politics and kind of sort of understanding how the sausage is made. Take a break. Back. In just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Scott in the PD. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, y'all. You know, it's funny, and you kind of caught me when you said when you got into politics and people asking, you know, where you're from, where'd you graduate, blah blah blah, this that and the other. But I don't condone. You know, obviously, I don't want children going to this. But I, there, there was a comedian at one time, and it's funny because he was on Wall Street prior to the crash. You can tell he's, he's obviously well-educated, super hilarious guy. He does a lot of skits on different things. But he's got one called Pay Your Bills on Time. His name's Felonious Monk. And, and he talked about our politicians being that of greater minds, graduating from Harvard and Yale and all these places. And you could have went to Norfolk State and got your education for half the price and been just as educated, considering the fact that we've reached the debt ceiling with our debt. How can you be of greater minds, but you can't balance a checkbook? That's something we learn in high school. Our parents teach us how to do, and they can't figure it out. Obviously, it's because they're spending somebody else's money, and there's no end to that. But with that being said, it's a great little skit. I don't recommend listening to it, you know, except for in <laughs> private, because there is some profanity there. But he hits the nail on the head, and it's really based on our government and how out crazy they've gotten on what they've spent they've reached debt ceilings they've continued to break the bank and they continue to print money and and then education system everything they stick their hands in it's like it gets out of control and and it's funny because you know i watched my thankfully my dad didn't get an opportunity to go to school and and everything but he became a salesman and did very well for himself and me and my brothers never wanted for anything he took care of us and i watched that die and i used to think i had to go to college in order to be a professional to make the money I wanted to make. Thankfully, I didn't go to college, but I also ended up being in sales as well, and I've never looked back. But it's amazing because I've lost some jobs because I didn't have that degree or lost the opportunity to take some jobs because I didn't have that degree. And it could have cost me just because I didn't have that piece of paper, but I've also had 23 years in sales and been very successful. It's just sad to think that that's how our world was going, and that was in the late 80s, early 90s, where it had to be, you got to go to college if you want to get this type of job. We got to stop that because there's a lot of great people that don't go to that higher education that are well educated, super thinkers, and understand business better than anybody, and have created their own businesses and done very well and been very successful without that degree from Harvard or Yale, which obviously hasn't done too well for the politicians up there that continue to spend our money that they don't have. Well, explain. You know, I have a great debate with friends of mine who know I spent some time in politics, and they'll talk about corruption. And corruption is rampant and the payoffs and the ripoffs and the deals nobody saw, kind of the Glenn Fry Smuggler's Blues song. And I say, yeah, I mean, you're right. There, There's a lot of that. I mean, there's no question about it. There's a quid pro quo. There's a, 
You scratch mine, I'll scratch yours. Consultants and lobbyists, our former legislators, turn into consultants. I mean, I get all that. There's no question about that. I mean, and the public should not tolerate that. And people that do that should be held accountable. But but I'm telling you the one the one issue that we don't talk enough about is competency. I mean, education, a highly educated workforce does not suggest competency. And when you look at the U.S. Congress, let's take them as an example. Is there a better educated workforce in America than the Congress? How much competency do they demonstrate? And I guess that comes from my world. But the, the, the uniqueness of, I mean, if I bring any uniqueness to the, uh, to the radio show, it is the fact that I have spent a good bit of time in the private sector. I've spent some time in the public sector. And in the private sector, I don't know how educated anybody was, but it was obvious who was competent or not. I mean, I have no idea the guy that started a business 40 years ago and now has 1,000 employees. I got no idea how educated he was. Nobody ever talked about it. But competency was because he had a beach house and he ran a successful business and he was philanthropic and he sponsored baseball teams and he gave to the church. And I mean, it, there was just something about that guy. I mean, he didn't need to tell you that he went to Duke Law or went to Harvard Business or he went to, to Stanford. I mean, he, he, you, that wasn't even a part of the conversation. And all of a sudden you end up in government and you, where's the competency here? I mean, everybody's highly educated, but wow, how many of these folks are incompetent? And I've always said, we, we need some corruption reform. We need a lot of competency reform. I, I would be in meetings, and I'm kind of letting uh, the cat out of the bag. I'd be in meetings, and there would be an issue the Senate would be dealing with. And as a business person, the, the answer was so practical and obvious to me. Because I lived in that world of having to answer to metrics and measures. I mean, I couldn't escape it, couldn't avoid it. Um, very few people are in that world. I mean, when you, it's, it's, it's kind of a squishy, hypothetical, theoretical world where words have more meaning than action. Back in a minute. So I made me a cup of coffee. I called Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon <laughs> agreed to get 61 cents on the dollar for all the student debt. He thought he could make $100 billion, but in return, he wanted to be the clearinghouse for the next bailout to come. And I said, well, Jamie, how do you know another bailout's coming? He said, it's our government, isn't it? I don't want BlackRock to get, I mean, BlackRock got the less bailout. I want to get this, and I'm talking about the processing fees for administering the bailout, whatever the bailout is. Last time it was, uh, this time it's student debt. Last time it was uh, some of the um, uh, COVID relief money, the PPP, and uh, some of the employment retention tax credits were administered by BlackRock. So Jamie Dimon, I mean, if anybody knows Joe Biden, Call Biden and tell him I got a deal. Biden will give 60, excuse me, um, Diamond will give 61 cent on the dollar, J.P. Morgan, but he wants to administer the next bailout. And once again, uh, for clarity's sake, I said, well, Jamie, how do you know there's another bailout coming? Because I'm dealing with the United States federal yeah. government. There'll be yeah. another bailout sooner history is than later. Now, let's go to the phone then real quick. Got a guest here we'll get to in just two seconds. Bruno from Florence. Hello, Bruno. You're on the air. <laughs> hey, hey, our Chang. Hey, our Rev. Uh, I mean, good morning. I called a couple of weeks ago for the first time ever, and uh, I was getting my feet wet. But after Thursday's speech, I'm fired up, so I may offend some some people. I want the college-educated white women, the center centrist Democrats, and the never Trumpers, Billy Crystal, um, and. Jonah Goldberg, whatever his his name is, to to defend Thursday's speech. 
I I want them to come out and say what 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 uh, difference was that um, as far as uh, unity. And then the second thing, Ken, I want your 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 input on this. Democrats play on emotions, and all their all their all their policies are about emotional things. There's no substance and no facts. The Republicans come in power, and we do the tax cuts and all that, but it's not sexy. But it's based on facts and substance. How do we turn that around? to make it sexy. That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, to me, the Republicans have to find something to run on. I mean, they're running against the Biden administration, and there's a good chance that's successful. But I I got some generic uh, congressional ballot and recent history here from Real Clear Politics, some of the um, historical accounting. Tom Bevin's a reporter. He calls himself an investigator, but he's a reporter at Real Clear Politics, and he does a good job of trending and some of the data-gathering I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. The the Republicans have to find an agenda that they believe in, and it can't be just running against the Biden administration. The Biden administration strategically is trying to make this about Trump because Trump is a very, very controversial political figure. And when your approval ratings are in the 30s, when the right track, wrong track numbers in the 70s, you got to make it about something other than your record. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's smart politics. So the Democrats are playing their best hand by trying to make this about not what they've accomplished, but rather the threat that is Donald Trump, the imminent threat that is always looming, the boogeyman. Cheeto Jesus is out there somewhere, and you better keep your eye on him. Um, because if, if we're not careful, he'll get back in control of government, and we know how, you know, half the country feels about that. Um when it comes to the sexiness or not, I think people are looking for substance. I mean, I think if there's one political party who makes no bones about it, they want to make government bigger and more effective and influential. That's what the Democrats in America right now want to do. You can't argue they don't. I mean, look, look at the bills they passed, and they've been somewhat successful in getting some of these bills done. Green energy and inflation, I mean, you know, disguised as the Inflation Reduction Act, and now the forgiveness of student debt, which is not a forgiveness. But let's be honest, it's a transference of debt. Somebody signed a contract, received a service, and borrowed money, and that debt has been transferred to somebody who didn't receive the service and didn't borrow the money. Um, I mean, that, that's the scuttle there. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the lowdown on what has happened. My concern is the Republicans don't have an agenda. They don't have an issue or two or three that they can sink their teeth into. I told, told somebody, a good Republican friend of mine, a couple of days ago, Give me a reason to vote for a Republican not named Trump or DeSantis. I mean, J.D. Vance and Blake Masters have created waves because they've said some pretty provocative and controversial things, but most Republicans have just hunkered down and said right track, wrong track, and Biden's approval will help me win. I mean, that's kind of the wind in my sail, and I would just rather see the Republican Party proactively address some of the issues in in a policy sort of way. That there are distinct policy differences in the Republicans and the Democrats. The Democrats make no bones about what they believe in. The Republicans right now seem to believe that their best strategy is to not say a word about what they want to do if given the opportunity, but rather just let people vote in opposition of what Biden has tried to do. And I don't think that's an effective recipe. I mean, I, I, I would rather see I can't the re- figure it out. Well, I mean, I they can did. figure it out. I can tell you why. Because the people that have the ideas are not allowed to be at the big table. 
I mean, Mitch McConnell would rather be minority leader than voted out as majority leader. I mean, it's self-preservation. Hmm. I can assure you of that, Rev. Mitch McConnell would rather his party be in the minority and him remain minority leader than his party gain the majority and him be kind of a um, an older, you know, non-majority leading senator. I mean, his day's done. I mean, if the Republicans take charge of the Senate, and that's iffy, but if they were to and not vote McConnell as majority leader, his career's over. I mean, it's done. How do you how do you go from majority leader relegated to just another Republican? So it's self-preservation. And that's kind of the, um, I mean, that's the crux of where the Republicans are. You've got this new right led by Trump and DeSantis and Vance and Masters and some of these other very different sorts. I mean, it's, it's kind of an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, anti-China wing of the Republican Party. The, 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 the problem with the, the Mitch McConnells of the world, they refuse to accept that two-thirds of Republican voters in America today, let me say that again, two-thirds of Republican voters in America today are anti-globalist, they are anti-interventionist, and they are anti-China. McConnell can't come to grips with that because historically during the Bush era, the party has been interventionist. It has been globalist. It has legitimized. Who was president when China became a member of the World Trade Organization? George W. Bush. I mean, it was not a Democrat president who allowed the, uh, and, if, and if the USA didn't bless it, it doesn't happen. I mean, I can assure you of that. If the USA says no to the World Trade Organization, we won't fund, we won't support, if China's allowed to be a member, but Bush was a globalist. I mean, Bush and Cheney were interventionist. And right now, the Republican Party is rebranding itself as this, uh, it's just a very nationalist movement. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Some would call it nativist. I don't think it is, but it's without question very nationalistic. Uh, in perspective. Barry Wingard is with us. We'll go to the phone in two seconds, but I want to make sure we give Barry some time here. Uh, Barry is intimately involved in all affairs relating to veterans um, and very, very, very supportive of things the community does, not just in in that lot, but civic-minded. Um, 9-11 is around the corner. What, 20, 21 years? The 21st year um, commemorating, celebrating, whatever you want to call it, of 9-11. So Barry's here this morning to kind of talk about, but for, first, before we talk about 9-11, let's talk about the Veterans Park. I know that's something near and dear to your heart. Um, is there is there something going on there that the public need to be made aware of? Uh, good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, tomorrow morning we're breaking ground on a World War II monument, uh, which will be dedicated on uh, Veterans Day this year, November 11th. Uh, that's a Friday this year, 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, in my opinion, the World War II monument is the single most needed uh, recognition in there. We had 16 million people serving the armed forces in World War II, and there are less than 200,000 living. Um, but the Friday before Veterans Day this year, or Thursday before, which will be uh, November 10th, uh, Marine Corps birthday, uh, the Marine Corps League and Charlie Caldwell are, are working to plant two trees that uh, seedlings that have come from Bella Woods, which was a huge uh, World War One battle involving Marines and and uh, and soldiers uh, of the American Expeditionary Force. And this is a big deal because the other trees are places like Quantico Museum, uh, University of South Carolina ROTC. That's how Charlie found out about it and. Uh, and we are really tickled to death to do that. There'll be a four o'clock in the afternoon planting of the trees on the Marine Corps birthday. So uh, 
everybody's invited out 10th and 11th. But more immediately, uh, like you mentioned, we're looking at Sunday, 21st uh, year since uh, the murderous attacks of, of 9-11. Uh, and uh, that's one of those things that everybody remembers what they were doing when they heard about it. You know, you hear people talk about, I'm not quite old enough, hear people talk about Pearl Harbor. And for me, it's uh, the Challenger explosion in, in 9-11. And... Uh, and just to refresh, 2,977 people plus 19 hijackers died that day. Another 6,000 were wounded. It's the uh, deadliest terrorist attack in world history. Of those, and this is who we want to recognize Sunday morning, uh, we're going to start at 8.30, are our first responders and, and members of the military that responded. But of those people that died, 343 were firefighters. 72 were law enforcement, and 55 were military. Um, so we want to recognize those in the EMTs. We're going to begin the ceremony Sunday morning at 8.30. Uh, the reason we start at 8.30 is so that at 8.46, we will have a moment of silence. Uh, that's the time the first plane hit the north tower of the Trade Centers. And uh, we will uh, uh, have a wreath laying and playing of taps. It'll be a short ceremony for those that uh, want to go to church. We'll be through by probably uh, 8.50 in the morning. Uh, I look at the weather every day now, and it's saying 60% chance of rain, but I hope it's that afternoon kind. But anyway, this is not going to be a huge ceremony. It's going to be very few remarks. Uh, last year, on the 20th anniversary, we had a, a really large turnout. Uh, the primary speaker was in the Pentagon the day the plane hit the Pentagon, and uh, he was involved with uh, law enforcement at that time. He was retired Army, but working in the Pentagon as law enforcement. So he was deeply involved in uh, what was going on that day. But uh, I just invite everybody to come up, out, very informal, uh, just wear, you know, something. You can come in your pajamas if you go back to bed afterwards. But I, uh, I want to get your take on this, Barry. Okay. I mean, my mind goes a million miles an hour while you're speaking because I know how informed you are about the mil American military. So, so I believe that we grew up in the post-World War II world. You grew up in the post-World War II world. I mean, Europe was shaped by, I mean, did the victor go the spoils? I mean, the country was divided, and uh, this part and that part and another part. America was kind of the last, uh, I mean, it, it was, it was. I mean, we, we, were, we were not nearly as damaged as Europe was, so we became kind of an economic superpower as a result of that. But, but I, I live, or my kids live in a post-9-11 war, I mean, a world. Um, the lives they live were probably as affected by 9-11 as our lives were by the Second World War. Is that, is that a fair summation to make? Um, taking shoes off to get on an airplane, um, standing in line, wearing clear, carrying a clear pocketbook to a football game. Um, I mean, all that is a result of Homeland Security and some of the advancements of government um, because of 9-11. Yeah, no question that uh, our lifestyle, not only your children, but all of us sure. are affected by uh, things that have been initiated since 9-11. Um, I feel like that uh, in in some ways that the patriotism that spiked in the few years uh, right after 9-11, 20 uh, 2001 has, is starting to wane a bit, and uh, that that 
bothers me a little bit. The military's having trouble recruiting right now, which was not a problem for a long time. Now that that has something to do with the economy. Too many kids going to better. college. Well, the economy's getting better. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when the economy's bad, the military recruiting is good, uh, and vice versa. But um, I, I'm scared. There's more to it. That there's some negative negative things coming out about life in the military. You know, you got you got the uh, poison water that was at Camp Lejeune, and and, and uh, you got housing issues in the army, and this sort of thing that. Maybe young people are trying to find something else, um, and I, I personally think that's they need to look at the military. Well, and, and I'll say this: I'm going to get Barry to come back in one day when he's not promoting a veterans event or a 9/11 event because he's so civic-minded, and I applaud him for that. But I, I want I want Barry to come back one day or agree to come back one day. He and I have had this conversation at the gym. Two of the great mistakes the American military has made was the invasion of Iraq and the withdrawal in Afghanistan. I mean, I think you I, and I, I, we share that sentiment. I say those are the two biggest blunders of the 21st century. Yeah, and, and that, that, that that's saying a lot. I mean, that really says a lot. And I want to kind of delve into that in a way that Barry could do better than I. I mean, as someone who's walking in those shoes, who understands uh, the role that we play. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a geopolitical affair, no question about it. But but it was still, I mean, it, it just caused problems in, in trustworthiness of the American military. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about the rank and file soldier. I'm talking, and, and we've got to be, I mean, the, the one thing that Barry and I have to be on the same team about is building a level of trust in the American military. I mean, once again, the, 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 the political bureaucracies of, of some of the, at the Pentagon, I mean, that, they, they've, they've got political roles, they've got multiple hats to wear. But, but I'm concerned because I look at some of the trustworthy numbers and some of the the, the, the trust Americans have in institutions that, that I think we've historically trusted. And, and we can't be. I mean, we've got to do something to restore our trust in the American military or all of us are going to live in a lesser than inferior country. Uh, I think you make some very valid points. Yeah. Uh, no, before, I'll come back. Well, let me before I want you to come back and let's delve into that. Before I let you go, you mentioned you're a Gamecock. I'm a Gamecock. There's something we may not be number one in the country in college football. We are in women's basketball, and that's all that matters. But but you know, as, as it relates to the American military, th- there's some prestige associated with USC. Uh, just it's in today's uh, news that the University of South Carolina is ranked number one in the nation uh, as a veteran-friendly college. So uh, that's something to be proud of. That's something to be it's very proud. Deal. Yeah, no question about it. So congratulations to our fighting Gamecocks for being the. <laughs> The, the, the most friendly university in America toward um, veterans. I didn't expect it to be an Ivy League institution <laughs> when it comes to being friendly toward American veterans. Thank you, Barry. Okay. And we'll get you all. back and appreciate all you, you do. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. To the phones we go. A couple of callers held on during that segment. Here is JB and Conway. Good morning, JB. Good morning. How y'all doing this morning? Morning, sir. How are you? Good, good. I was wanting to call in. Uh, you were talking about, you know, the higher education. Uh, you're talking about, you know, four years of college. And, um, you know, I, one thing I told my son whenever he graduated high school, I said, what do you want in life? Well, you know, what kind of lifestyle you want to lead? And he told me, and for the longest time, he's always hunted and fished. He wanted to be a game warden. Well, you know, we started figuring out what that was going to cost, and you know, and having to work for the government. And I told him, I says, I said, you ain't going to get all the things that you want in life by working for somebody else. So just to go a different route, my son with $10,000 went to a local uh, technical college, got a little certificate, 
and now he's 23 years old. And in the last three years, he's been work, working in the heating and cooling industry, and he's making sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars a year, you know, off of a ten thousand dollar degree. Thank you. Good investment. Sounds mm-hmm. like a very wise investment. You know, we could do a series of shows on this topic and this subject. Uh, and I'm guilty of this. I am probably the most guilty of anybody I'm speaking to. So please understand, I'm not being judgmental. But we have equated success with what I make. You know, I got this degree and instead of what I love and what I want to do. And I mean, obviously, nobody wants to be broke and financial security and independence. And I mean, that, that's important. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Um, somebody told me money doesn't make me happy, but it takes a lot of my worry off the table. And I get that. Um, but it seems to me that, and I'm so guilty of this. Um, when I, when I talk to my kids, uh, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to live? How are you going to make money? I, I think there's got to be a balance of something we enjoy, something that we love, something we, um, appreciate waking up every morning, having the opportunity to do and, and how much it pays. And the happiest people in my life are not the wealthiest. I mean, I know some wealthy people in my business and, and political life. I've crossed paths with, with uh, absurdly wealthy people. They're normally not any happier, if as happy, as some who aren't. So I think we've got to remind ourselves that education and income and, you know, career, all of that's important. But, but maybe we shine too bright a light on what do I make? What, what do I earn? What sort of earning capacity do I have? And does it make me happy? Do I enjoy doing it? Um, now, now, once again, Shakespearean theater, good luck with that. But, but I think there are a lot of fields out there, a lot of careers out there that you can make a decent enough living and find some happiness and contentment. And I just think very often we, we, we put happiness, contentment in the backseat of success and we make it all about how much money do I make? How much can I be making? And look, once again, I am not being judgmental because I'm captain of that team. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's Kevin in Florence. Morning, Kevin. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Ken, uh, it's only Wednesday, so I know you could probably make a couple of calls and never again shall we have Gamecock football on the internet only. I so can't believe you, that. You I mean, go ahead and get get that started. I know for like two or three years, it didn't matter if, if Carolina was playing in uh, Westside Lake City Middle School, it was on TV. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. So back to my uh, reason why I called, the higher, higher learning, maybe I can uh, – look at it from a different view. I know you said that you're talking about uh, colleges, universities are have some skin in the game. As much as I despise um, college and higher education and the nostalgia that comes along with it and the, a false promise that's going to offer the world to you, all you have to do is go, go to college four years and you'll have the world handed to you. You worked in uh, the private sector truck um, bed business. I don't know if you ever had Snap-on or Mecco tool come to your um, business. Yes, Snap-on Snap on came every other week. All right. Now, we know they offer a, a tool for the job. And if you look at education, a higher education, it is essentially a tool for a job. They can't guarantee that you're going to be a good – Snap-on didn't guarantee that you were going to be a good mechanic because you had all the best tools. So – if you go out there and you're a piss poor mechanic and can't do the work, even though they provided tools, it's not Mako or Snap-on's responsibility to discount your tool because you're a sorry mechanic. So it's not the higher education's or the university's obligation. It's overpriced. Snap-on, we all know, Snap-on tools are overpriced. 
Um, but they offer things that a lot of times you can't get at Lowe's or Carolina Supply or, or, or Schofield. So you have to get it. And the same reason, you have to go to a university, get that degree to get a certain job because that's the world we live in today. But I, I don't see that it is Snap-on's job to take away some of your debt. And we know people spend all kind of money on those tool trucks that they don't have. And, and you get on a payment plan, just like university. So if I could maybe sway your, your logic of thinking just a little bit, look at it more like a tool truck than anything else. Thank you, Kevin. That's kind of an interesting argument to make. Um, the, the reason I think the university should have some skin in the game, they're providing the tool. I mean, they're saying the tool is worth X. You're right. I mean, I, I go back to my football coach back in the day. I had a football coach tell me one time, and I'll never forget it. It's just, I mean, I, I referenced this a million times in my life. And I, it's as simple as can be, but you got to listen closely. How big is your give a John Brown? I mean, nobody can answer that but you. I mean, I'm not into motivational speeches. I'm not into, you know, um, go, going to, to Los Angeles to hear Tony Robbins convince me that, you know, my problem is my lack of personal motivation. But I had a football coach tell me one day, son, a lot of this is how big as you give a John Brown. And nobody can answer that but you. Talent is a gift from God, right? I mean, LeBron James had more talent to play basketball than I did. Uh, Brett Favre had more football talent than I did. Albert Einstein had more academic or intellectual horsepower than I'll ever have. But nobody controls my attitude and my effort but me, period. I mean, you can educate someone to the nth degree, but if they don't exhibit if they're big, if they're give a John Brown it big enough, they'll never measure up. If their attitude and effort suck, that they're just not going to be successful in whatever walk of life they enter. So, so once again, um, talent is a choice. God gave Dave Baker certain talent, certain skills that he didn't give me. He gave well, Rev and I joke around a lot about the room out back. I mean, I don't have any idea what he does when he goes back there, but things start working like they're supposed to. I mean, I have no idea when it goes back there for three minutes. I mean, I could go back there and kick, pull every wire, burn it to the ground. I mean, and I, I wouldn't know as much about what I'm doing as, as a man of the moon. But you said before, there's no way I could sit behind a microphone four hours and talk about whatever it is that got me. So, right. so we all have these unique gifts and qualities and skills. Um, some maximize and some don't. But, but a lot of this is how hard are you willing to try? How much effort are you willing to give? And, and only you can answer that. You can be encouraged. Uh, you can play 2001 before the game. You can run down the hill. But if your give a John Brown isn't big enough, you're simply not going to be successful in whatever endeavor of life you choose to pursue. And I think society in general has refused to exclaim that point as loudly and proudly as they could. To Kevin's point, um, you can get the entire truck of snap-on tools. But if you're hard hitting in it and you don't apply yourself and try to be the best you can possibly be, it doesn't matter if you got a tool from, you know, the El Cheapo section of um, one of the big boxes or one of the best tools that is made. I, the problem with student debt to me is the government became um, the bank. Once the government became the bank, the university said, wow, okay. So we're not dealing with a kid who only has so much money. We're dealing with a government that has unlimited capacities and the ability to print whatever they want. So why should we increase tuition 
by 8% this year, 9% the following year, 11.5% the year after that. Why shouldn't we build dorms with climbing walls and Starbucks and, you know, Chick-fil-A's inside? I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling the, the higher education establishment. I'm not talking to calling them crooks. I mean, they're playing the hand they're dealt, right? I mean, the hand they're dealt is the government's going to be the bank. Well, I mean, if the government banked radio, conservative talk radio, guess what? The ads would probably be more expensive. I used the analogy a couple of weeks ago. If a, if a muffler, if a guy started a muffler shop and he never put a muffler before on in his life and he came to community broadcasters and says, I want to buy $100,000 worth of radio advertising. I want you to run it for a year and I want to pay you $10,000 a year for the next 10 months. The owners of the radio station say, man, we can't do that. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's not smart um, credit. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. We don't need that sort of exposure to risk. But if the government said, don't worry about it, I mean, if he doesn't pay you, we will. Why wouldn't we take, uh, you know, his money on a project that he probably fails at? That's the argument I'm trying to make. And, and I guess, you know, conceptually, the argument is everything the government gets their hands that involved in or, or gets themselves that entrenched with, they, they make the quality go down and the cost go up. I mean, it's kind of the, one of the consistencies of government. Anytime the government becomes the bank or the funding mechanism, the quality more times than not declines and the cost more times than not increases because you insulate yourself from true market forces that will assign a value. Price is the best assigner of value in a market. Price will figure you out. If people believe they're borrowing too much money to go to college and the degree's not worth it, they'll stop. They'll just simply stop. I think that's what eventually needs to happen. And once again, I think there are three or four or maybe even five million kids every year going to college who simply should not be going to college. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. I mean, we normally rant about American politics, right? But every now and then, we'll take a, a bit of a respite from that and we'll talk about some of these meaningful events in the county, community, Sumter, Orangeburg, Florence, our, our um, what is it, Rev, our, um, our markets, the, these radio markets. See, I'm messing, I did it on purpose. You know yeah, I did you it. You know Just, I'm not near my <laughs> microphone. Thank you very much. I, I never ask him anything until he's not near a mic, and then I do it out of spot. You're funny. So, um, You're yeah, funny okay. like that. Well, let, let, Mr. Funny Man is trying yeah, to be funny here yeah. for a second. So Don World is with us, and, and Don has invited everybody this side of the Mississippi to, uh, to come to the studio. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. But, but you're here on behalf of Boy Scouting of America. That's exactly and, right. um, and the scouts are having a particular event this Saturday at, um, at Schofield Base Hardware. Yep. Okay, your place of employment. Um, well, your place you hang out at. I That's right. How much work you do there, Don't but you hang it. around. No. No. You hang around at Schofield's a good bit. But um, And Don's been a good friend of this show. And we, we I mean, you guys that have listened know the history that Don and I have. Um, but he's here today in a different capacity to tell you listeners about a scouting event that you're a part of at Schofield's Ace Hardware this Saturday morning. That's exactly right. This Saturday morning from 930 to 2 o'clock, we have the Boy Scouts of America with us. Uh, we're going to do some really nice events. I'm going to let the folks tell you what we're going to be doing. I want to introduce them to you first, and then we'll go from there. From there, uh, I have with me Doug Stone, who's scout executive in South Carolina. I have Tara Holberg, who's the district executive and Brian Morrissey, who's the district camping committee chair. we got the big shots of scouting world That's in here, exactly right? That's exactly right. Okay. We've got the big guys. They're going to tell us what's going on. And this is going to be a fun event. It'll be something I think everybody will enjoy. Uh, and we'll go from there and let them tell them what's happening first. And then there's a 
a very special second part coming along with it also. So, guys, uh, Ken, you can ask me any questions. Yeah, who, who wants to go first? I mean, let's um, uh, start out here. See, he, he, the Yankees were a lot better than they are now. I mean, the Yankees <laughs> played 700 baseball up until about June and then they've kind of they've had their issues here. They recently. got into that southern heat and kind of went away and took it out of them. <laughs> there you go. But I mean, let's talk of scouting for a bit here. I mean, Don's talking about an event you guys are having Saturday morning, but certainly that's not all scouting is about. Um, why are you associated, affiliated with scouting? I grew up in scouting. I was a Boy Scout when I was a kid. Uh, it teaches you a lot about life and lessons, how to be a leader, how to enjoy the outdoors. And I think today more than ever. Kids need an excuse to get outside. They need a reason to go out and have fun because there's a lot of electronics that rot their brains and, and distract them. So when my kids became of age, I got them back into it, and I've just progressed farther into the program to bring that to other children in the area. And there are things that we need kids to be doing that they aren't doing today. I mean, I, I grew up in the country. I mean, I grew up on the middle of nowhere on a farm. I mean, you kind of tell the way I, I, I abused the Queen's Law English, but... But we just didn't stay inside. I mean, whether we were scouting or not, we were out and about. We were exploring the wild outdoors. That's kind of what scouting is about. And it seems that the modern kid lacks that fundamental. Absolutely. And, and you know, scouting and the Boy Scouts of America specifically bring kids into the outdoors and families together in ways that um, they just don't have an opportunity to do anymore. And so we're so um, excited because um, with this recruitment uh, and this day coming up, um, we're going to be inviting families to come see and explore a um, little bit about that ad adventure that is scouting. And and really, when we introduce families to the outdoors, um, th the world opens up in, in ways that uh, family activities can bring their families together, and kids just don't. Uh, have those opportunities too much anymore we, we talk a lot about the young boys but the girls i mean you're nodding your head over here you're the only female in the in the in the uh, studio here so um your affiliation with boy scouts as a female well i never did scouting as a kid um i grew up in the middle of the you know the outdoors but never did scouting until we moved to florence and i started my now 21 year old as a tiger in scouting and both of my boys are now eagle scouts and um, they, they are at Clemson University. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I get it. Don't be, don't be sorry. Go Tiger. My 21-year-old, uh, you know, he picked his degree, his major based on what he learned in Scouts. He is a, bi a biosystems engineering and sustainability, which is a lot of the um, environmental protection, conservation, all of that. And my youngest one, who's a freshman, has also picked packaging science because of all the stuff he learned in scouting and scouting really does take the kids that are shy that are not you know out there and as extrovert as other kids and it helps them uh, function well not only function but it helps them learn you know working together community service um, a lot of stuff and it did wonders for my kids as, you know, as scouts and all the way up until Eagle. And it's still working for them now, even though they are Eagle Scouts and out of the program. You know, I read somewhere some of the most successful people in America, there's common denominators. They get up earlier and stay up later. They're normally a little bit brighter and harder working. But but Eagle Scouts, I mean, when you look at some of the um, some of the commonalities of real successful people, leaders around the country, um, Eagle, that's got to make you guys proud to be associated with a with an organization that 
creates and and cultivates those leadership qualities. It really does. And um, uh, being an Eagle Scout is a reflection of uh, just a lot of commitment and hard work. I'm learning some really important skills that are life skills that help people uh, throughout their lives. Uh, And uh, a particular thing that the Boy Scouts of America brings as an Eagle Scout, the iconic, you know, badge of Eagle Scout uh, is leadership, peer leadership. Kids, kids grow. And, uh, you know, most of our programs are are youth led. Uh, And nowadays, Tara just spoke about her two sons becoming Eagle Scouts. Nowadays, um, this has been such an incredible thing. But young women, females can be a part of scouting. Uh, and specifically, the Boy Scouts of America, we have programs and always have for 50 years for young women. Uh, but now the, the scout troop uh, can be se- girl troops, um, separate altogether from the boy troops uh, at the scout level. And it's, it's Scouts BSA has girl troops and boy troops. And we've had in uh, throughout uh, our ter- 19 county territory in South Carolina, uh, over uh, it right now, it's 11, I think it's 11 young women have become Eagle Scouts since they've been eligible in the past year and a half. And frankly, we believe that the more people that live up to the values of scouting and being an Eagle Scout, the better. And and Don, I'll, I'll go to you here for a second. People like Dave Baker pronounce the word fishing. They believe there's a G on it. That's such a useless letter. Again, it's actually fishing. fishing. You know that, fishing. and I know that. So we're going to have a fishing clinic a recruitment event, and a flag retirement ceremony Saturday at Schofields. That's correct. Specifically, walk me through kind of when, where, and what the priorities are. Then again, like I say, it's this Saturday 10th from 930 to 2 o'clock. At 1245, I believe, we're going to have a flag retirement ceremony, which is something we thought was real special. We're we're proud to be in lockstep at all, anytime with the Boy Scouts or with uh, this particular setup because – it honors not only the Boy Scouts, it honors the veterans, it honors America. Uh, they're going to do a – I've never seen one. But I, but I, there's a proper way to retire a flag. And the, these folks can tell you exactly how that is. And, the, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to be excited to see it, to see a, a flag ceremony retirement. So when do you guys step up and tell me – got about a minute here. Got so somebody minute. tell me exactly what uh, happens. Basically, there's a, a prayer or a ceremony to dedicate to – the veterans and America and everything that this flag represents. And then the flag is disassembled. You remove the blue field from the stripes and then you separate the individual stripes. So at that point, it's no longer a flag itself. It's just a collection of ribbons. And then at that point, it's allowed to be burned and it has to be burned completely down to pure ash. So there's no remnants of whatever remained originally. And that is the proper way to retire right. a flag. Interesting. Very interesting. And I, I learned that this morning. It's actually burned, but it's not burned as a flag. It's burned part and parcel of. Burning uh, it as a flag yeah, is cumulatively against the walls. A, yeah, There you go. It and, has to be deconstructed. And should be. And then you guys are doing it the right way. So, Don, once again, 945, Saturday morning. 930. I'm sorry. Right. 930. I like the way you accommodated Gamecock fans not having it at, because uh, I think there's a noon kick. See, that's, that's such right. Clemson bias. I mean, it's so obvious what the intent there uh, was. But, you know, we'll, we'll get past that. Got two, two, two children at Clemson, and the world's rocking his Clemson jersey. I'm kidding around here. So so anybody open? I mean, it's open to the public. Open to the uh, public. No, no invitees. If you want to come, come. Come, please. And learn more about scouting. Right. And also, we'll, we really hope this will be a yearly event. It's something we can do every year, promote scouts and promote this and uh, promote the veterans like you just had a little while ago, so we're excited sure. about that. Okay. Thanks to all of you. 
Thank you for being here. Um, go promote scouting. Go to Schofield Saturday morning. Learn more about it. Um, that's about it for today. Join us tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel.